0: This episode, Justice League International, number 12, cover dated April 1988. And welcome to the 12th episode of Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast a proud member of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. My name's Dierty Mulshag, and I'm your host. And because I'm feeling frisky today, I have invited a friend to help me with this issue of JLI. In fact, this guest not only likes comics, he creates comics for a living! Yes, folks, today's co-host is a real live comics professional. He's the creator of several series, including Love & Capes, Long Distance, and the upcoming Time & Vine. He's also done a ton of work for IDW on their My Little Pony comics, and he has written for the animated series Ultimate Spider-Man Web Warriors. Folks, please help me welcome Mr. Tom Zoller. Welcome to the embassy, Tom. Thanks for being here. Hey, Shag. How you doing? I'm doing great, man. Thanks so much for being here, Tom. Everybody who listens to the show loves comics. We all love comics. We read the crap out of comics. You actually make them for a living. That's insane. How did you get into that? I know.
1: That? Oh, I was dropped on my head a lot when I was a kid. Mm, that explains So, yeah. Actually, what happened was my parents had a reward program when I was growing up. Uh-huh. Because I was reading from a really early age. And, like, if I cleaned my room, I got a comic book. So, uh, I had a lot of comics, and my parents had a really well-behaved kid. <laughs> OK, OK. I have never not known that I wanted to do comics.
0: Oh, wow. OK, so from the earliest age.
1: Yeah, I, I have, like I said, no memory of not wanting to be a comic book artist. It, it's as close as I could get to being a Jedi because okay. it's kind of like some guy showed up and said, well, you know, your destiny is to become a cartoonist. OK, but I was thinking
0: maybe I'd go into stand up com. Nope,
1: you're going to be a cartoonist. That's that's it. <laughs> it's just
0: over. Now, see, when I was a kid, I thought I was going to grow up to be a UPS man. That didn't quite come together. But, like, so when you're little Tom Zoller, because believe me, folks, he's not little anymore. The guy's, like, 18 feet tall. It's crazy. When When I rode in his car, he actually had to put the top down. Just because he would have bumped his head on the roof. Anyway, um, are you
1: making fun of my automobile?
0: No, your car was lovely. I'm just saying you're too freaking tall. It's uncomfortable <laughs> having a conversation with you on my feet. So, what kind of comics did you envision you'd be doing when you were like, you know, little Tom Zoller? Did you imagine you'd grow up to be a Spider-Man guy or do your own thing? What did you think you would end up doing?
1: Oh, I was, I was a hardcore DC guy.
0: Oh, nice.
1: Yeah, I thought, I thought Justice League. I thought Superman. At the time when I was, I was thinking about Superman. Superman wasn't a very good series. I mean, it was starting to. It had that pre. Crisis calcification, yeah. where it wasn't wasn't particularly good, and then whatever was going on would inform what I thought I should do next. I I still have what I think is an awesome firestorm pitch. I don't nice. I don't know if he's salvageable to that point, but I I had a way to bring back Ronnie and the professor that I thought would make sense. You know, I think that's the, the strongest iteration of firestorm.
0: So one of the things I think that fits nicely with having you on the show is that you are well known for doing comics with a, a humorous side to them, and JLI is you know all about. About relationships it's all about the humor that seems to be your specialty in what you're producing why don't you tell the folks at home a little bit about maybe an elevator pitch for some of the stuff you've done and what you're working on now
1: Oh, well, Love and Capes I can do because I've made this pitch for so many years <laughs> that I could you know, do it as a nuclear bomb was exploding in front of me. Love and Capes is a superhero romantic comedy. It's about a superhero who says, I love my girlfriend and I'm going to tell her that. But if I tell her that, I have to tell her everything. So is there ever a good time to tell your girlfriend you have X-ray vision? What does she want for Christmas when she knows you can crush coal into diamonds? Things like that. Part of it came about because what I wanted to do, I was a fan of the Superman books, you know, the, the 90s reboot or the post-crisis reboot. And it bothered me that Superman got engaged to Lois and didn't tell her who he was.
0: True that.
1: And, and I think from a production point of view, it made sense to do that because if, if there was huge, horrible backlash, they could have walked it back in those six months. But it seems to me that if you get engaged, you should lead with that. Like, hey, uh, I want you to be my wife and you should know that I'm, you know, a Catholic and I vote Democrat and I fight crime. Uh, (laughs) That would come up. Kind of my, my theory was to hit them where they ain't. I didn't want to do a, a regular superhero series because DC and Marvel were doing that. So if you wanted to read normal superhero stuff, there were like 100 books on the stands that were doing that. But I thought I could write a story about a couple in a happy relationship. And I thought there was a lot of interesting stuff to do with if you wind up dating a superhero, why are they dating you? Like they live in a world where in Love and Caves, he at one point had dated the uh, Wonder Woman analog. So why would you date like a normal bookstore owner? Mm. I thought there was, a, there was a lot of ground for humor there and... And I think I was right. I did 24 issues of it. It got nominated for two Harvey
0: Awards. That's awesome. And that was uh, released by – well, I know the current collections are being released by IDW. Is that who was originally released through?
1: The first 13 were self-published. Okay. I did that because I had a huge pile of money, and I thought that (laughs) burning it would take too long. Okay. So self-publishing was a way to get rid of it. Uh, It was costing me too much to store it, apparently. And. But I was I was lucky enough that uh, thanks to the auspices of Harlan Ellison, IDW picked me up and they first started doing the trades. And then after Diamond started changing the way they were taking new projects, IDW picked up Love and Capes as a regular series. Uh, and they did the Love and Capes Ever After and Love and Capes What to Expect, which were the the two series I did for them. I got to the point I wanted to. It's it's hard to walk away from a project, but I didn't have any more stories for a while. I'm not saying I'll never come back to it because it seems it seems un- wise to say that because I don't want to be Sarah Michelle Gellar saying, if Buffy goes to UPN, there's no way, no way at all that I am going on that network and then having to say, well, I'm happy to be part of UPN.
0: <laughs> um, it's like, uh, I remember Bruce Willis years ago in a talk show was like, well, I don't necessarily want to say that in case I ever need to do Die Hard 3.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Mm-hmm. Going back to that okay. one quite a few times.
1: <laughs> yeah, but I wanted to make sure I didn't do, like, the crappy last season of Scrubs. Oh,
0: uh-huh. uh, okay.
1: I can't fall back on the thing where I employ 200 people, so maybe I should I should do another season of it. It's just me. So I, uh, I took a little time off. I, uh, I worked on My Little Pony. Nice. I still work on My Little Pony. It is it is phenomenally part of that franchise. I did it to impress a girl. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the best reason ever. I know. And it's it's a great pitch to an editor. Okay. Because, because you're not coming in like, you know, uh, this is why I should be part of My Little Pony. It's like, alright, dude, I'm trying to impress my girlfriend. Is there any way that I could get a cover for My Little Pony? And that became, do you want to pitch the series? And so I mainline the series, and, you know, Pony gets made fun of for a lot of things, but it is a incredibly well-constructed, well-conceived cartoon. It is so easy to write for because those characters are so well-defined. And when you see after you get done doing pony um, you see other kids cartoons quote-unquote girls cartoons and you see how they do it wrong Mm. because you can take any two ponies and have them get along or not get along because those characters are so so intricate whereas other shows it's like they all get together that's the death of drama that's that's why the first season of Star Trek next generation sucked because everybody got along so yeah I've uh, done a few my little pony stories
0: if I can interrupt there for a second and I gotta say at least what I because I, there was a couple of different conventions that I've been to where Tom's there, and I like kind of haunt his table a little bit, just like one of those creepers. And it's really nice to see all these little kids that come up, and you light up, the kid lights up. You guys have a conversation. You know, you either do a sketch, or they buy a print from My Little Pony. It's just. That's got to be so rewarding to see kids walking away with comics or prints of comic characters and being excited about it. And it's just got to make you feel so good.
1: Honestly, it's my favorite part. I tend to post a lot of pictures of me with you know little kids talking mm-hmm. about comics. I like being able to pass that on you know get them reading first of all get them excited in something and it's just it's just like mainlining sure joy when mm. you talk to them it it's the kind of thing you know so much of my job is me in an 8 by 20 room in my house drawing with me and my cats <laughs> and that can get a little insular so uh it's nice to get that feedback and know that you're you're reacting to someone someone is reacting
0: to the stuff that you're doing that's awesome so what's on what's on the drawing table right now
1: i am working on a book called Time and Vine which is my follow up to my other book Long Distance which was about a uh A couple in a long-distance relationship because I'm clever with names like that. Um, (laughs) Time and Vine is a story about a magical winery where if you go into the right tasting room and you drink a bottle from 1912, you go back to 1912 until you sober up. I did this because I wanted to write my wine bills off for a year.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Tax research, right?
1: Exactly. You know what? I don't joke about that because I got audited, and that was horrible. So uh, I need to stop saying that. Um, Yeah. It, it actually uh, – part of it came about because Kurt Busick had some tweet about make, making a comic about a winery at some point. And I thought, hey, I know how to do that. It was not the project I thought I was going to do next. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a great relationship with IDW. Uh, I pitched them on the book, and they didn't bat an eye. And they're like, yeah, let's do that. So as as we record this, I'm about 15 issues. from so finishing up the last issue. It's going to be uh, the same format as Long Distance where it's four 40-page comics. Okay. It'll eventually get traded up. But I'm – I'm really happy with it. If I'm doing it right, it's going to be my up. You guys will cry and cry as it goes on, but oh, wow. I think it's, it's going to be really cool. It's uh, loosely based on a winery in upstate New York called Brotherhood, which is the oldest winery in the United States, and I got to go there on a research trip. A friend of mine from high school is actually a sommelier at a winery here in Ohio, so he took me behind the scenes, and I got to see a lot of stuff and do research for my book, and that's that's one of the other cool things about my job is when you can, can parlay the, hey, I'm a writer. I would like to know more about this thing. Well, here, let me take you on a tour. That stuff is just... Just, just so cool. That will be coming out in July from IDW.
0: Well, I read the preview online on IDW's website, and it just really was very engaging. It grabbed me. I can't wait to read it. Thank you. And what a fun concept. I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge, huge time travel nut, Doctor Who's, like, in my blood. And you I, and me both. And I love drinking, so it's, uh, it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's right in my wheelhouse. So
1: I, I've done some time travel in Love and Capes, and may have played a little fast and loose with it, but I'm pretty sure that the, the time travel aspect of Time and Vine is pretty locked down. Like I, a friend of mine was trying to stress test it and goes, what if this happens? I'm like, this is how that's handled. What if this happens? This is how that's handled. Can you change history? This is how that's handled. And <laughs> I'm, I think it is internally consistent and and hopefully will hold up that way.
0: Well, I look forward to finding out what happens when the Daleks come in their time machine to the winery. So that should be interesting. <laughs> okay, I'm making crap up. But, uh, you know, we, we've danced around it here. We, we've talked about some of the projects you work on. And yeah, 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 Love in Caves. Yeah, 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 Time and Vine. But really, I think what we need to hone in on, Tom, is probably the biggest achievement of your career. And that would be the character you created for Dial H for Hero when you were how old?
1: Uh, I was 10.
0: Uh, I think I was
1: 11 when he when he appeared, but I was 10 when I created him.
0: Let's face it, you peaked, man. You peaked at 11. <laughs>
1: it's all been downhill since then. So who'd you create? I created a character called Anybody. Anybody he was a shapeshifter. He had like uh, no face, kind of like The Question. Okay. And red, orange, and yellow zigzags that made up his costume. He appears in The New Adventures of Superboy number 35. He's drawn on the cover by Gil Kane. Ooh, that ain't bad. Yeah, I know. Um, I have a stat of the cover because Howard Bender is the artist who drew the inside of the book. Uh-huh. And I was at a New York comic convention and ran into him and asked him if he had those Dial H for Hero pages, and he didn't. But he's like, oh, I got this stat. I'll send it to you. So oh. um, that's just... Uh, you know, because they had to stat it to, if you've seen the cover, there's a giant genie taking a net and throwing it over the Superboy logo. So they had to stat everything so they could get the logo in with the net. Um, it's actually a pretty cool effect.
0: That's awesome.
1: And my, uh, my source of eternal shame is that I did not put my full address with it. So I had to, I had to follow up with that.
0: Mm.
1: You know, so It says, great by Tom Zoller, full address, not given, write us and let us know, Tom. <laughs> so,
0: Way to go! Very thorough, it, that Tom Zoller kid.
1: I know. A- apparently, I am I am known for mentioning this. In fact, it is how I started listening to your podcasts <laughs> because somebody told me that you were doing this thing called the Who's Who podcast. Yes, yes, and that I was mentioned in an episode. And if you want me to listen to something, finding out that I'm mentioned in it, it is a surefire way to make that happen. <laughs> I started listening with that one, and I went back and caught up, and and I've been listening to you guys ever since.
0: To be more exact, uh, yes, invoking Tom's name does inflate his ego, which does make him appear, but I th- I think it's more important. I think we were making fun of you, probably, because my co-host on the Fire & Water Podcast Network and on the Who's Who Podcast, a little gentleman named Rob Kelly, has just a little bit of experience with you, I think. Isn't that right, Tom?
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't know that you were making fun of me. I think, I think Rob was, oh, but that is... I hadn't that's... met you yet.
0: Now yes. I do, openly, <laughs> mock you, yeah. but...
1: Now, now, now you have nothing but targets, right? And Rob and I went to the Cubert School together, and you were roommates, weren't you? Yeah, pretty much. Our housemates. We, we had we had adjoining apartments. So it's okay. kind of a weird situation, but it it's why we became friends because we weren't actually each other's roommates. So the stuff that roommates <laughs> do that drive you nuts, yeah. we would just go talk to each other about what our other roommate was doing.
0: Okay, but yeah, it, you know, some of my best times, some
1: of my best memories are with Rob.
0: So which one of you was like the Jack Tripper and which one of you was Larry? Really, is kind of what I'm wondering.
1: Huh? I am adorable like John
0: Ritter. Hmm, okay. Larry had a like lot of the- hair, though. That's true. <laughs> and,
1: and in that scenario, I am totally Larry.
0: Okay. Um, I just like the idea that you burst through people's doors and just come right into the apartment. That does seem like a very Zoller move.
1: To do. Oh, oh yeah. It was it was like Seinfeld. You just kind of walk in and go, oh. <laughs> yeah, we were, we were both each other's Kramer, which was great. We, uh, we spent time watching TV and drawing comic books at the same time. I was there as Rob did his Batman 66 pages. Nice. Um, I know he's talked about his Jesus pages. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm the one who said you have an entire crucifixion convention going on here.
0: Um, <laughs> He's, he did a panel of Justice League International folks, so we'll talk about that many years from now when we get to it, in one of the annuals, the <laughs> Justice League Antarctica annual. He did he, he inked one of the panels.
1: I know. Sex so, plays though.
0: Yes, exactly right. So exciting. Now, I really do want to get into talking with you and comparing your work on a humor book to the JLI, but before we do that, we should probably take a second to thank our sponsors, folks. We uh, should. We really should. This episode of the JLI podcast is sponsored in Part by instocktrades.com instocktrades is your best online source for trades hardcovers and other collected editions all for up to 42% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more now each episode will select a collected edition to briefly discuss from the instocktrades uh, library usually it's going to tie into that month's issue of jli in some way uh, shape or form my pick is since we're talking about again a book with relationships and humor and things along those I picked a little book I found at random in the instock library called love and capes trade paperback it sounds interesting go on no problem mainly because tom was too uh, shy and polite to not mention himself. Here, I'll read you the description. Abby and Mark are typical couple. At least that's what Abby thinks. Unknown to her, her boyfriend is not just an accountant, but he's also the super-powered crime fighter, the Crusader. See Mark tell Abby he's the Crusader. See Mark tell Abby he's the Crusader. Find out how Abby deals with some of his super ex-girlfriends, and learn the difference between a weakness and an allergy. Experience their first Christmas and beyond. Again, published by IDW, as we talked about. Writer and artist. Now, apparently, I know you said you did this book, it it doesn't actually say Tom Zoller here, it says Thom T H O M, which is clearly not the name Tom. That's this is Thom Zoller, so I, I don't know what that's about. Page count 152, uh full color, normally retails for nineteen ninety nine, but you can save forty percent and rip Tom off and get it for only eleven dollars and ninety nine cents. What a steal.
1: Now, I know. It's like taking money out of my pocket.
0: It is. Now, uh, we do ask the guest if they happen to bring an in-sock trade recommendation. It's not required, but did you happen to? All the cool kids do, I should mention. I,
1: I did, and this is awkward because mine was uh, Love and Cave's What to Expect. Um, no, actually <laughs> – I, I listen to you guys regularly and you come up with great values and, you know, it's like this this trade has a thousand pages and it's only ten ninety nine. <laughs> I am going in the completely opposite direction based on this issue of Justice League International. I am going with the Jack Kirby Mr. Miracle Artist Edition, oh. also from IDW Hardcover. Nice. It is following in the huge footsteps of the Jack Kirby New Gods Artist Edition comes another classic collection of Kirby Fourth World Beauty Miracle. Mr. Miracle, the latest artist edition, collects seven nearly complete Mr. Miracle stories, including issues two, three, five, six, seven, eight and nine and more. Mr. Miracle is one of the core fourth world books uh, is a multi generational epic that was one part Star Wars before Star Wars (laughs) and another King Lear and one of the greatest good versus evil storylines ever to be done in comics. One thing is for sure. You'll never have a better chance to see the king's cosmic opus any better than in the pages of the artist edition. Shag, have you seen these artist editions?
0: And I was going to ask you, since the numbers are so kind of quirky, I'm guessing they're taken directly from the original art- artwork. Is that what they do? They are,
1: and they are, they are reproduced full size. Oh, Jesus so huge. High- They're huge. All of us cartoonists have to build new bookshelves to handle them all. Uh, the, the first time I heard about this, I said, I don't understand why anybody would want this. I saw the Thor one and then decided I needed to have them all. Uh, IDW publishes way, way, way too many of them. So you have to get, uh, you have to get very picky about it, but the Kirby ones in particular are really good because it doesn't just re- reproduce the black and white line art. It'll reproduce the pencils. Oh. Uh, so if there are blue pencils on it, you'll see that. You'll see what stuff was inked. You'll see what stuff wasn't inked. You'll see corrections that are pasted on. and You can really get a feeling of how the artist is thinking. And they're just amazing. I adore these things so much. This one is written by Jack Kirby, drawn by Jack Kirby, cover artist by Jack Kirby. 200 pages is normally $125. <sighs> But you can get it for $75, and I cannot recommend these books enough. If you like seeing original art, this – because for you to buy the originals that Jack Kirby had, oh it will cost you much, much more than $75. Oh, yeah. So if you have a budget but not an infinite budget, it is a good way to get that stuff. I I just – I cannot recommend these books highly enough.
0: It sounds absolutely stunning. Just gorgeous. And, and then you mentioned the Thor one, which I'm assuming was the Simonson one as well. Yep. Just, wow, breathtaking. So, yep. folks, you need to order a couple of those and uh, Capes trades so that Tom can buy some more of these, I think, is what needs to happen.
1: Yes, please. <laughs> there, there's a Bilson Kavich one coming out, and I need to have that, too. Oh, what are they Doing?
0: Is it like new mutants? They're doing demon bear.
1: They're doing de- new mutants. Oh
0: yeah. god! It hit me right in the sweet spot. Wow, <laughs> that would be. Oh. Uh, okay. Anyway, um, for this and all your other trade paperback needs, please, folks, visit instocktrades.com. Uh, some amazing choices here, and it sounds like there's a lot more we should be looking at. Wow. Okay. Let's get into this here. So, folks, we're going to be talking about Just League International, number 12. If you want to join the conversation, please hit us up on social media. You can find us on Twitter at JLI Podcast. Of course, we're on Facebook as Just League International, Bahaha podcast. You can also use, use our hashtag, which is pound FW Podcasts. That's plural. Join in the conversation. Tell us what you think. Tell us about this issue. Tell us what you think about Maxwell Lord. Tell us what you think about the resolution as, as the first year comes to a conclusion. Tell us why you think Tom is unable to spell his own first name, you know, whatever you feel like talking about, please share it on the social medias. Alright, now we're going to get to the part of the show that I really don't know why I keep doing it every month. It's sort of like, uh, I don't know, self-mutilation. I just keep hitting myself over and over, but it's the part of the show where we chat more with the guest because Lord knows Tom hasn't talked enough already. This is where we're going to ask you, sir, a little bit about your Justice League background, and now I want you, though, to address how you feel this book may have influenced you on some of your writing.
2: Oh,
1: my, uh, my origin with this particular comic, this particular series is pretty unimpressive. (laughs) I bought it. I was a huge Justice League fan growing up. Um, Like I said, I was always a fan of the DC books because those actually had endings as opposed to Marvel. Uh And when you're buying comics off the newsstand and your parents are the one buying them for you, you don't have any guarantee that you're going to get the next issue of anything. So having a complete story rather than that continued soap opera that was Marvel was really appealing to me. And also I always thought the DC characters were brighter and more colorful and more interesting and you know the power sets were, were much more powerful so I was I was pretty invested in comics in this time. Mm-hmm. I, I've read the Legends miniseries. I had followed Justice League from you know on and off as a kid, and then religiously from, like, the Earth-Mars Wars on. So I got in at Justice League Detroit. Represent. Which, in execution, may have had some issues, but I thought it was a brilliant idea.
0: Yeah, right there with you.
1: Yeah, and the G M D Mateus issues that wrapped it up and where the characters got written really well just in time to be killed off. <laughs> and then Justice League came out of Legends, and I was reading the hell out of Legends. So when they said, hey, we're forming a new Justice League, like, immediately, I am there. Justice League did influence Love and Capes. Uh, it showed me what kind of humor could be done in a book mm-hmm. because you weren't seeing a lot of bantery stuff in comics right. you know dialogue was a little more punchy a little more stan lee and this really brought a character dynamic to it which i unabashedly stole for a lot of love and games obviously sitcoms uh, were a big influence here, and sorkin was a big influence but mm. knowing that it was possible to do humor and light moments in characters and just just the pacing of this book because not everything was the big superhero thing They would spend enough time with the characters that you could really get to know them and get a feeling for how they were funny, and they were all funny in their own particular way. I mean, Batman, obviously, the world's greatest straight man, yep. And Guy Gardner being, you know, the the loud, fish almost Andrew Dice Clay character, and <laughs> you know, um, Martian Manhunter, it's constantly funny in his really, really subtle way. And Booster and Beetle, you know, were were the Dan and Casey of uh, my Sports Night reference from their
0: generation. Yeah, I I adored it. So. Of those characters, and we can go beyond the ones you just mentioned, though. But who are your favorite JLI characters? And if you if you don't have just one, try and narrow it down to like three or so.
1: Oh, I can I can do that. Um, I love Martian Manhunter. Nice. Um, I it, when you're a kid and starting off reading comic books, the powers the most important part to you because especially you know reading stuff in the 70s and 80s, the characters weren't always as well developed on the DC level. So, you know, someone like Firestorm, who you may have heard of, Shaq. A little bit. Yeah. His atomic restructuring power was such a cool power. Like when you realize he could take out the entire Justice League, you know, with a thought. Hey, Superman, nice kryptonite outfit you've got on there. And Martian Manhunter had all of Superman's powers except he could turn invisible, read your mind, and shapeshift. And anytime I saw him in a comic, I'm like, why are we not seeing more of him? He just seems so interesting just based on his power set and his appearances were, were always, I don't know. He just, he just showed up and he, he kind of commanded the room a little bit. And I always wanted to see more of him. I was really glad when he became a member of Justice League Detroit because it meant we got to see him all the time. Mm-hmm. And I think the writing of him in these books are kind of the definitive Martian Manhunter because he's much smarter than you are. And he can be funny when he wants to and he can be a den mother when he wants to. But like secretly, he is always amused by what's going on. And he has a he has a very visceral bond with the league. You know, some people come and go. Some people it's a it's a you know, they're they're in because the editors have told them they have to be in. But John always seemed like the league was his home and I love that about him. And then uh, past that, uh, Booster and Beetle. I was a big fan of Booster Gold. You know, I love the idea of a of a commercial superhero who is actually taking advantage of what comes along with being a superhero. Right. I like the Blue Beetle comic. I thought it had a lot of fun. I think Booster Gold may have been handled better in the Booster Gold comic, but he played really well with Beetle, who was handled better in Justice League uh, in these books than, than in his own book. I think he's funnier. So, yeah, those, those are my favorite characters.
0: Yeah, I would definitely agree with what you said about Beetle being better represented. Presented here versus own series, uh, Booster was very different between the two books, but they both have uh, you know things to love. Now I'm glad you talked about Martian Manhunter because you hit a, it, without me really knowing it and, and able to verbalize, you kind of said a lot of things I feel about him because my first League was also right there, uh, or at least when I became an avid reader was the Mars Earth War, and so for me Martian Manhunter's always been around basically with the Justice League because there's there's legions of people that were reading before that they're like no Martian Manhunter wasn't around for all those years blah 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 I know that folks I've got. Those back issues, but for me, since I really became a Justice League fan, he has been. You hear it all the time, he's the heart and soul of the team. I do feel that way. I do feel he is the emotional rock of the team. And I, I like how you say the he's smarter than because I always feel like he's, especially with the Just League International, he's just barely tolerating everyone. And I do mean <laughs> everyone, no matter, you know, even if it's Oberon. You know, anyone who's got some common sense, and street sense, he's still just barely keeping it together for them. And he's, he's only there because he feels like he needs to hold the group together. And I love that aspect of the character.
1: He's got this quiet strength to him. You know, even, you know, the first time that he's dealing with his, his newfound love of Oreos, <laughs> he's just so matter of fact about, you know, Captain Marvel introduced me to them, and I like them quite a bit, where he's enjoying his own own private joke half the time, and I, I really like that about him. I He's probably overpowered, which is also why he's got such a such an obvious weakness. Yeah. you know, to, to keep him in check a little bit. But I just think he's a he's a cool character. I like like every version of him. I love the um I love the Mark Badger miniseries. That mm. that's that might be my favorite favorite story of his. You wow. know, I like him when he's got the, the big slopey eyebrows. I like him when he was just you know the normal green guy. I, you know, he's fantastic in in Darwin's uh, oh, New Frontier.
0: So good. Oh, I love that book so much. Yeah. Mm. Speaking of other books, we should probably move on to the next segment, something we like to call... Monitor Duty. And these are other comics that were on the shelves the same month as this issue of JLI, featuring JLI members. Justice League International number twelve was on the shelves December eighth, nineteen eighty seven. Thanks to Mike's amazing world of comics for that information. So we're going to be looking at books the JLI members were featured in that were on the shelves in December of eighty seven. First, we're going to talk about just kind of the general team appeared in various books. Tommy, you want to tell us about a couple of those?
1: Yeah, uh, Action Comics five ninety eight was out, uh, mostly by John Byrne, uh, inked by Ty Templeton. Some nice. members appearing from Superman's thoughts appear in the book. We see flashbacks to bunches of them. Uh, this is the first appearance of Checkmate oh. in, in the DC Comics and it's early John Byrne computer graphics really Uh, I haven't looked it up but I can tell you that there is a nuclear explosion in that book and it is very clearly done on a dot matrix printer Uh, (laughs) Byrne is really good at embracing new technology and sometimes he is so much on the cutting edge where it bleeds a little bit okay Uh, he was one of the first people to do computer lettering I remember that yeah so uh, yeah there are a couple of those scenes in his book and hey for more information on Superman you can check out the From Crisis to Crisis podcast by Michael Bailey, a past guest of the show, as I understand it, and (laughs) Jeffrey Taylor. The other book that jumped out at me was The Weird by Jim Starlin and Bernie Wrightson. This four issue miniseries featuring the JLI. It tells the story of an alien consciousness coming to Earth. The continuity is certainly a little wonky. I don't know exactly when you can fit this in. I guess uh, the story takes place around the time of JLI number seven due to the team composition. I remember Captain Adam being involved, Mm -hmm. but him not Really being a member of the team when it came out. The important part to me on this one is it's drawn by Bernie Wrightson. who recently passed away. Bernie was an incredible talent. There's a tendency to when somebody, uh, when some comics professional or some famous person dies, that people will tell stories and the stories seem to be like, oh, and this is why he thought I was really talented. And make it about yourself. (laughs) I am very explicitly not doing that. I was set up next to Bernie Wrightson at a New Orleans convention that I was at in like 2000, 2001, um, the Big Easy Con, Mm -hmm. and he was just the nicest guy. The thing I like about so many of the creators from the beginning up to the 70s and 80s who I have had the great pleasure to run into – these are the guys who I cut my teeth reading their books. They were all so nice, and they treated you just like another professional. Wow. Yeah, there, there's a point where I was I was doing caricatures. So again, this is not about me being awesome. Don't
0: don't think it's that kind of story. But, <laughs> Come on, Tom. We we all know how this works with you. But go ahead.
1: Yeah, but Bernie said, "Hey, I really like your stuff." And there's this point where you look back and you go, "I too am a fan of your work, Mr. Wrightson." Um, <laughs> but they they treated you as contemporaries. It is it's a fantastic thing when that happens and, and Bernie was just so,
0: so awesome. That's fantastic. I'm, it's so gratifying to hear that when creators are real people who are kind and have heart, because unfortunately, you don't hear those stories as often as you hear the stories of people that aren't. It just seems to be sort of people tend to share negativity, but keep positivity to themselves. So it's really nice to hear a story like that. For myself with The Weird, I've actually never read it, even though it features the JLI, and I just picked it up about mm, three days ago. Uh, I was at my local comic shop, and they had a, a giant... Someone brought a huge collection from the 80s, which was like, oh my gosh, I wanted to dive and swim in this box. Or, actually, it was about eight boxes. It was amazing. But uh, The Weird, one through four, was in there, so I was sure to grab that, and uh, it's on the top of my reading stack now.
1: Oh, cool. Uh, yeah, it's it's a fun and bizarre little book. Um, Jim Starlin was doing some superhero stuff at the time. and He brought a different sensibility to it, so... But I remember, I remember liking it. I, I remember it not being what I expected it to be. So, uh,
0: was it
2: weird?
1: Yes, it was by definition weird. Okay. It, uh, it nailed its concept. <laughs> for more on the weird, you can check out Professor Alan Quarterbins' podcast, as it was recently covered over on that show.
0: Nice, and I think you recorded a bumper for that show.
1: I think I did.
2: Yeah, o-
0: over lunch one day. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, uh, other members of the JLI that appeared on the shelves that month, Batman number 418 by Jim Starlin and Jim Aparo. This was the Ten Nights of the Beast part two. Oh, great stuff.
1: Yeah, I think that might be the one where the beast figures out that it's easier to chop through his own hand than it is through a rope.
0: Well, okay. There, you know there's a big story about that. I mean, they, they people have contacted uh, Starlin and asked about that. Or maybe it was Aparo. I guess it was Starlin that come And they, and the gist of it is, it is miscolored. It's supposed to be a steel cable.
1: Oh, you know, I think I did hear that. Yeah, that, that makes a lot more sense. So,
0: gotta, gotta come to the defense. Even though it's, it's better to go for the joke, uh, cause it's fun to make fun of KG Beast, But, uh, cause the name's, so, I love the name. It's so goofy fun. So that's, that has, that uh, has been explained to me. So. Aha. Uh-huh. Also on the shelves, Detective Comics number 584 by John Wagner, Alan Grant, and Norm Brayfogle. Oh, the angels should sing every time someone says Norm Brayfogel's name. But, uh, it was Batman versus the ventriloquist and the dummy. Nice. And for more on Batman during this era, check out our network's Batman Nightcast by Chris Franklin and Ryan Daly, both past guests of this show. Also on the shelves is Blue Beetle, number 23, coming towards the end of that series, folks, by Len Wein and Don Heck. And it's Blue Beetle versus the Mad Men again. And for more on Blue Beetle, check out the Beetlemania podcast by our buddies Jay Jones and Tim Wallace. Tim's also a former guest of this show. Or you can check out the Cord Industries blog by Tim. Captain Atom number 13 was on the shelves by Carrie Bates, Greg Wiseman, and Pat Broderick. It's Christmas, and Captain Adam's feeling out of place. And at the end of the issue, he gets to meet Nightshade. That's a pretty cool little connection Charlton. For more on Captain Atom, check out Jay Jones' coverage over on the Silver and Gold podcast and the Splitting Atoms blog. And finally, Green Arrow number 3 by Mike Grell and Ed Hannigan. Black Canary faces off against a group of thieves, helping her to face her fears after being victimized in a previous Green Arrow story. And uh, sadly, we are getting closer to the end of Black Canary in the JLI as she leaves for the Green Arrow book. Very, very sad. For more on Green Arrow, check out the Warlord Worlds podcast with our buddies Darren River Sutherland. And for more on Black Canary, check out the Power of Fishnets podcast by our buddy Ryan Daly, again, former guest of this show. Well, that's a lot of good comics right there.
1: That is. 80s were the best time in comics for me.
0: Oh my gosh. It is the golden age. I mean, they say that uh, for every comic fan, the golden age is when you were 12. Uh, mm-hmm. that's, that's not that far off, you know? Uh, they, it, like, my sweet spot of reading comics where I find my joy, which is where I try and focus, is probably around, like, I don't know, 19, for D.C. at least, it's like around 1983 up through about 1995. That's like, for me, all of that's glorious, more more so in the 80s and the 90s. But that's just when I, I'm my happiest reading that
1: stuff. Yeah, same here right before the crisis going on through, yeah, the early 90s, uh, before everybody started wearing, like, leather jackets and having mullets.
0: Okay, and I do kind of dig some of the leather jackets and mullets. That's why <laughs> I go as far as 95, sir. <laughs> But anyway, well, we we should take a podcast promo break. We'll play some commercials from our friends. And when we come back, folks, we're going to talk about, finally, Justice League International number 12.
3: The end of the world is approaching. Soon the planet will be engulfed in a nuclear Armageddon. And the only people that can prevent this from happening are considered to be the greatest villains of all time. The only thing standing in their way is the Justice League. In 2005. Uh, Wait a second, Are, are we sure about that date this time? Yeah, it's 2005. We're sure this time. Let's just
0: be perfectly clear. I hate all of you so much.
3: Okay, good. Got that. In 2005, DC Comics began publishing a 12-issue bi-monthly comic called Justice. Justice. Written by Jim Kruger with art by Alex Ross and Doug Braithwaite, this series was essentially a Super Friends for adults, and now another group of Super Friends has come together to discuss all 12 issues in a podcasting crossover called J.L. May 2017. The excitement begins on the April 30th episode of the Fire and Water podcast, and continues into Supermates, the Idlehead of Diabolo podcast, Views from the Long Box, the Pulp to Pixel podcast, the Lantern cast, the Shazam cast, Comic Reflections, the Silver and Gold podcast, The Power of Fishnets, Waiting for Doom, and Justice's First Dawn, J.L. May. L. May. 2017. Last year, they covered the beginning of the Justice League. This year, they discuss and review the League's Toughest Battle. The coverage begins on April 30th on the Fire and Water Podcast located at fireandwaterpodcast.com
0: In 1984, I was 10 years old and a strange light
3: lit up the park behind my house. In the middle of the night, still in my pajamas, I ran to investigate. A strange machine sat brooding in the dark. I stepped inside and I was taken to a far-off galaxy where I saw men,
0: monsters, and gods fight and die. Join us again on the Marvel Superheroes: Secret Wars and Beyond series, part of the Pulp to Pixel podcasts where we will discuss each issue of the Secret Wars miniseries and their long-term impact on the characters who joined us
3: on Battleworld and on those we left behind on the home front. Join us again on Battleworld. Return with us to our Secret Wars.
0: We're back from break, and folks, as we go through this issue, if you want to see pictures or images from this issue, please head out to our website, which is FireAndWaterPodcast.com. Go to the Just League International Show. You'll find a post for issue number 12. You'll also find a gallery post, and there we'll pick out some of the panels that we're going to talk about that are are worth discussing, and those will appear on the page so you can follow along if you can't seem to locate your copy. And if you can't seem to locate your copy, please go sit in the corner for a few minutes because you just don't have your priorities straight. So, this is Justice League International, number 12. Published by DC Comics, cover dated April 1988, cover price 75 cents. This is number 12. This is a bonus anniversary issue, one year celebrating. They didn't even go for double size, and yet it feels it by the time you end up reading this thing. Cover by Kevin McGuire and Al Gordon. Tom, or Thom, as some people apparently need to call you. Could you... You know what? Seriously, Thom? I mean were you like a devotee of Starboy from the Legion or something? I mean, what is that about?
1: Well, Shaguga, I will (laughs) tell you that my mom decided to spell my name with the H because she didn't want anyone calling me Tommy. But actually, if you think about it, Thomas is spelled T-H-O-M-A-S, and everybody pronounces that right. So... I fought against it when I was a kid, and then when I got a little older, I thought it was kind of cool. And yes, I did like Starboy because he spelled his name properly. And by the time of the 30th century, we've eliminated war and famine and figured out how to spell the word Tom.
0: There you go. Perfect. Well, Tom, would you please walk us through the cover of Justice League International number 12?
1: Uh, we see Maxwell Lord looking like Therok from The Fatal Five, because let's reference the Legion of Superheroes more to make sure Rob listens. <laughs> He's kind of looking half Sam Neill, half Terminator, because I'm sure you've discussed it, but uh, Sam Neill was the basis for Max the Lord. That is true. Uh, It is a striking cover, is very graphic, and I will say it is bold to have a guy in a suit as the main image of Justice League. There are no no traditional superheroes on this cover. I will also say that honestly, I don't care for it. Um, Wow. Max's facial expression is a little pained and forced to try to make it fit with a robot half. Um, It just seems uncomfortable. I mean, it's it's well rendered, but it, it It doesn't... I don't know. It doesn't hold up as much as I wanted it to.
0: I, I I can see what you're saying there. It's it's not as artistically attractive as some of the others, but it is bold. I don't think you can miss this cover. And I I, I do want to talk about Maxwell Lord, and I kind of have that earmark for the end because it's a, an interesting conversation. So I think the the casual reader who's probably aware of Maxwell Lord at this point though is going to see this cover and go, "What the funk? I got to find out what this is about." And yeah. I, I'm I'm glad you mentioned the Terminator reference because that's kind of going through my head as well. However, then I thought, you know what? It's actually been like. For what four years since Terminator came out at this point, so I don't know that it was actually on the tip of people's mind.
1: It's true, and to be another four years before Terminator Two came yeah. out.
0: Yeah, it is. Well, not being the most attractive of covers, I think it is very striking. I think it would be hard to miss it on the shelves. Also, you've got that really strong yellow, the really strong orange. While Max does look paint, it is still uh, the detail work on his face is just really still very impressive, in the shadowing. I like that part of it.
1: Oh yeah, it is. It is exceedingly well rendered, and you're right. Yeah, it is a. It's a very bold graphic cover that. The background has uh, like a Star Wars pattern that's very much a – it's graphic. It's not rendered by hand. It's its like a zip or something like yeah. that.
0: Now, with all that said, you put this up against the cover of number one or the cover of number ten or something. Yeah, th- those other covers are going to win. Sorry, folks. Hands down. But I don't think it's as bad as Tom says, and Tom's just – he's judgmental. That seems to be his nature. Right? <clears throat> yeah, I'm cranky. <laughs> So, uh, it does say, the inside story, Maxwell Lord, Man or Machine. We've been waiting all year to find out this guy, and it's finally come to a head. So, uh, creative credits, real quick, are plot and breakdowns by Keith Giffen, script by J.M.D. Mateus, penciler, Kevin McGuire, inker, Al Gordon, letter, Bob lepan yes, Bob LePan, hot dog, colorist, Gene D'Angelo, and editor, Andy Helfer, same crew as usual, and uh the title of the issue is, Who is Maxwell Lord? Tom, why don't you take us through the first half of the issue?
1: Sure. We open up with a giant splash of Metron looking very intense and also showing how much we need computer color in a few years because it seems really flat to me.
2: Uh.
1: He is being very cross with the Justice League, who last issue found this computer facility after following a giant robot back to its lair. Mr. Miracle is trying to protect his teammates from Metron's wrath in a particularly cool scene, reminding you that the new gods are in fact gods. All while Captain Atom is just trying to ask, what does God need with a floating wheelchair? Star Trek 5 never not funny except when he watched it Uh, but Metron is having none of it and starts glowing causing all the JLIers to cower while Mr. Miracle talks him down We also see that all this is being monitored by Maxwell Lord's computer, who is surprised to learn that Mr. Miracle is a new god and high father's son. Apparently, he kept that on the down low. Metron says that he was drawn here by his retrieval unit, screaming out in pain, and Mr. Miracle realized that this was a setup to have Metron eliminate the League. Metron cuts Miracle off because he has no need of exposition, and in 30 seconds figures out what's going on, while Max's computer realizes the jig is up and needs to exit stage right. We cut to a subplot where we find that... The Dome, the headquarters of the Global Guardians, and they are losing their funding because the new Justice League International is getting all their UN funding. Tuatara of New Zealand is seen sulking away because they no longer get free parking, which is weird since his power was to see the future. You would think you would have seen that coming. (laughs) Super 80s haircut wearing Green Flame and Ice Maiden are disappointed to see their paychecks are short. And this will also be their last paycheck. Dr. Mist offers to be nice or creepy, depending on how you read the scene, to help out Ice Maiden, (laughs) while Green Flame totally creepily tries to flirt her way into a bigger check. The two girls leave, deciding that this, since this is their last check, they're going to go on a last binge, showing they manage their finances as well as Shag does.
0: Hey, hey you're not
1: wrong, necessarily, but hey, continue. Seen the stuff you buy at Heroes Con. Uh, <laughs> then the next scene is the heroes who will become fire and ice in Rio by the CEO. my favorite caption of the issue, where they decide to hatch a new plan for employment and then head to the closest JLI embassy. We cut back to the mountain where Metron has destroyed his retrieval unit off camera in the time that it took Green Flame and Ice Maiden to book a transatlantic flight and land in Brazil. He's going to take care of the quote awareness unquote that has infected his computer and Mr. Miracle is happy to let him do this. Beetle and Miracle squabble and almost fly their shuttle into a mountain until Martian Manhunter nonchalantly points this out to him. John can afford to be lackadaisical about this because he's invulnerable. As long <laughs> as the fuel tanks don't catch fire, he's good. <laughs> back to Lord Industries, where Max is having a long, dark tea time of the soul, wondering what's happened to his life when the corpse of Mrs. Wootenhofer drops in. Max's computer said that he disciplined her for shooting Max while he, her, or whatever gender computers are, repaired Max. The computer moves right past this and starts demanding Max give him access to the Internet, much like a 14-year-old boy, since he's currently (laughs) trapped in what appears to be a wall-mounted Apple IIe, given the time period of this issue.
0: (laughs) I'll take it over from there. Cool. The Evil Computer, and and I'm going to continue calling it Evil Pewter, uh, as I was calling it last episode. (laughs) Uh, Evil Pewter tells Max that they need each other. And doesn't Max remember how he used to be before Evil Pewter came into his life? Then we're treated to a six-page flashback. And how do I know it's a flashback? Because those glorious rounded corners on the panels. I love those. We learn all about Max's climb to power, how Max used to be a complete corporate douchebag, and those are capitalized, uh, doing anything to climb up the corporate ladder, including faking a friendship with the CEO and lying about this mutual love of spelunking. How insane is that? So, of course, Max may be a bottom dweller, folks, but he didn't really have any interest in deep, dark caves. So after a few months of fake bonding with the CEO over exploring caves, Max was ready to enact his plan. Max was actually going to murder the CEO during a climb, making it look like an accident. And then while he was grieving over his friend's death, Max would then be promoted to CEO as he's next in line. Nice plan, except before Max could murder the CEO, the boss had an actual accident and fell down a cave shaft. Perfect, right? Except that the boss was still alive at the bottom of the cave, and Max had a change of heart. Was it because Max actually cared, or was this because he was scared of the whole situation? We don't know, but we do know that Max climbed down after the CEO. During Max's descent, Max came upon this strange light. Upon examination, the light was coming from a computer deep inside the cave. What? A computer in a cave? No, no, it's not the back computer, folks. This is the sentient evil pewter we've been talking about, and it has decided it needed to save Earth's population from themselves. So the computer messed with Max's brain a bit, showing him the path to power. With that, the rescue attempt for his CEO was completely forgotten, and Maxwell Lord was reborn. We see how Max rose to power and wealth, forming Maxwell Lord Enterprises, hobnobbing with the rich and most powerful people in the world. All the while, Max and Evil Pewter were working towards their plan. With the creation of the New Justice League, Max and Evil Pewter had found the power base they needed to enact the next steps. So, manipulating events, Max recruited Dr. Light to join the Justice League, and he hired these terrorists to attack the United Nations building. Hmm, might sound familiar. That's the plot to Justice League Number 1 we covered. Then Max brought in Booster Gold to join the team, and he hired the Royal Flush Gang at the same time to cinch the deal. Again, plot of Justice League Number 4. Then came getting the Justice League International status. Now, this took Max pulling a few favors, but Evil Pewter took it up a notch and actually attacked the Earth with a floating satellite belonging to Metron. And uh, that was from Justice League Number 7. So, with the flashback... Max can't help but feel he feels like scum for what they've done now now what's happened what's changed because you know throughout all this Max was totally on board so uh Evil Pewter is still insisting on Max upload the program to a larger computer Man, it's the 80s. Where's Matthew Broderick when you need him, right? (laughs) After all, being stuck in that Apple IIe, or maybe it's a Commodore 64, really sucked. And Max is feeling every bit of darkness in his soul is tied up in the evil pewter. And why does he feel differently now? And then he realizes, when Mrs. Wootenhofer, greatest name ever, when Mrs. Wootenhofer shot him six times, Max actually died. The old Max died, that is. The man that came back from death has had enough of evil pewter and its schemes. With that, Max dramatically smashes the computer, and evil pewter and the Commodore 64 forever. Success, Max is free. He stopped the Evil evil Pewter all by himself. He didn't even need the Justice League's help, but uh uh-oh, turns out that Max is also free of the medical repairs that Evil Pewter did for him, uh, for his body after he got shot, and Max now begins to bleed from all six of the bullet wounds and slowly collapses to the ground, thinking, now we write Fini to a very ugly story. Simultaneously, with Evil Pewter destroyed, Metron sees no need to hang around and he just splits. The League's a little shocked uh, after the suddenness of it, and they didn't do anything, but uh, you get to see a few fun moments with Guy Gardner missing Captain Marvel sing-alongs, and and Beetle and Mr. Miracle making some Star Wars jokes. And uh, the final scene, it's very touching, it's at a hospital the next day, and it's with Mr. Miracle and Oberon, and they're visiting the unconscious Maxwell Lord in the hospital. Luckily, the League found Max while he was bleeding, and rushed him to the hospital before it was too late. And they explain, uh, in their discussions, we find out that the Martian Manhunter read Max's unconscious mind to understand exactly what happened. So, now the Justice League know what Max has been doing for the last several months. But they also know that Max is a changed man. So the decision has been left with Martian Manhunter whether Max should be allowed to remain with the team. And the last shot is a close-up of the JLI communicator in Max's hand placed there by Martian Manhunter. And that is the conclusion to the first year of Justice League International. Woo! We did it, folks. Look at that. Woo! Awesome. All right. So, Tom, what would you think of this issue?
1: You know, I really like this story. I'll be honest. It didn't stick with me to the point that when I started reading this, I remembered exactly how it happened, mm-hmm. uh, which happens with a lot of books. But I think it's a really good change of pace. It's really interesting to flesh out Max this way. I had forgotten how much of a mystery he was at this point and yeah. that, you know, he – I don't think he had developed his uh, his mental powers yet. Nope. That wasn't an issue yet. Uh, but it's what monthly comics do so well because you, you get used to – it's almost like binge-watching Netflix series when you read these in trade and you forget that you would get that month where the story was completely different. And it wasn't the issue you were thinking you were going to get. And it was, it was a very different way of telling a story. Um, I'm also surprised because I was reading this on comicsology. So mm-hmm. I didn't have a physical issue in front of me because it's up in my attic in a box that's probably not labeled as well as it should be. So I was reading on comicsology, but I didn't know what page I was on at any point. And I was surprised at how thick it is, which it's, it's almost the antithesis of a lot of modern comic storytelling where a lot of stuff happens in this issue. And I kept I thought this issue was going to end twice before it did, because there was just so much so much going on in it. You know, if you were paying 75 cents, this was a very satisfying chunk of story that came about.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, you've been waiting all year for the reveal, and it, they did the flashbacks in six pages where you find out everything about Max, but wow, just, like you said, dense, very crunchy. I, I'm glad you mentioned comicsology because I wanted to mention something. You, you talked about comicsology, and you talked about the coloring earlier. You talked about the flat colors. And mm-hmm. it's interesting, as I've gone through at least the first 12 issues, that's one of the things I've noticed. I talked about it a little bit on the earlier episodes, but the colors in the series almost seem to be intentionally flat. Like Gene Angelo chose to make everything a solid color because, like you know, on page one you talked about uh, you know Metron with the the solid colors there. But if you keep going, you'll notice like if you look at Mister Miracle, his green cape and green trunks and all that—it's all one solid shade of green. There's no shading. It's all there's no transitions. Same thing with all the characters—they pretty much all have a one consistent color without it changing in variations, and it almost seems intentional because sometimes they'll show that in an issue where some something else transitions in colors, but the heroes' colors don't. It's almost like they were planning for an action figure line or something, or, or, or just very intentionally wanted the colors to be bright and bold and never mistaking anything. It's, I, I, as, a, as a comic creator, I don't know if you've ever come across anyone doing that cho- the color choices like that on purpose or not.
1: Uh, not in a while, but the the thing about this is computer coloring didn't come about really until 92, 93, mm-hmm. because we actually took a tour of the DC offices where they were talking about it. Oh, so wow. they were still operating under the limited 64 64- or color palette that they had where everything was a, a 25 a 50 or a 75% gradation. Mm-hmm. And you see McGuire do these really interesting, I don't, I think they're probably Zipatone patterns, but I'm not sure, but he wasn't using like the standard dot pattern where the dots are all in a very tight and like perpendicular grid. He was using like a mezzotint, where it's a bunch of dots in a pattern, but it seems a little more organic, and that was what he was using to shade a lot of things. You see it a lot with Mister Miracle's shadow on his cape.
0: Yeah, looking at page and, two, I'm looking at the same same panel. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and that's that's the kind of thing where the artist and the the inker had to do a lot more to get shading across because you couldn't do it as much in the color um because you're still having things separated by hand and people working on an amber lith and all these you know it's virtually stone knives and bear skins compared to what we do today <laughs>
0: I'm sure all the colors of the past appreciate you giving that analogy. <laughs> it's like I tell my teenager, yes, when I went to school, we used a chisel and a hammer in, in class. It's absolutely right.
1: Yeah, I, I try to impress that on my goddaughter when we're watching like the DC TV shows. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, was that special effect not to your liking? Let me tell you about the Justice League special where Green Lantern shot himself in the head to teleport.
0: <laughs> oh, the good old days, if you could call them that. <laughs>
1: yep. Yeah. The Justice Leaguers really have not a lot to do in this issue. Uh, mm. Most of them don't even speak. Uh, Rocket Red, Bat Canary, Black Canary, and Batman all say nothing. And with Batman, you kind of expect it. But the other two usually talked a little. Wow. A little
0: they more. don't have a single line?
1: No, not that I saw. It's, wow. it's really heavy on Mr. Miracle. Martian Manhunter and Blue Beetle speak a lot. Captain Adam goes around acting like a jerk. But yeah, for the most part, they. I didn't catch it when I was reading it. I could probably. I'm searching through real quick. But well,
0: I mean, I didn't mean you had to do a specific big line count but that's just you're right you make a good point i mean even if they had one or two little lines snuck in there i mean usually those characters are all very involved well Red, uh, rocket red's new but i mean black canary always has the sharp biting lines so wow
1: yeah i had a i had a search to make sure batman was in it he's he's only in like two or three panels
0: hmm. <laughs> boy after 1989 that's never gonna happen again i know he's really good at hiding people forget that <laughs> Uh, you talk about people not having a lot to do Captain Adam did have some to do Uh, he got a little trigger happy and actually blasts Metron which is pretty funny because I mean Metron just literally the way McGuire drew it Metron has this pulls a face and literally like brushes off the smoke from the blast it's completely ineffectual now I think at this point Giffen and Demetrius were probably still kind of trying to figure out what to do with Captain Adam because he's a lot more trigger happy than I think you would read him in the the Carrie Bates stuff but if nothing else it made for just a gorgeous panel of of Metron just being like whatever
1: oh yeah and he was also a a really new Character at this point, he had been around for a year or two with the the post crisis version, but his version wasn't it wasn't a classic version. So he didn't have like twenty years of Mister Miracle to fall back on, where he had a baseline for what that character was like. He was very much a brand new creation at this point.
0: That's a good point. That's a good point. I also like uh, in the same scenes where Mister Miracle when he's interacting with Metron, Mister Miracle is so nervous. I mean it's 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 quite funny. It's almost like imagine Mister Miracle's like a high school kid throwing a kegger while his parents are out of town, and suddenly the cops show up. You know, Metron's the cops. And and the kid's desperately trying to get his friends to just shut up and not heckle the cops. You know, it's like, guys, please,
1: come on. I'll, you know, honestly, I'll go a little differently with you. I I see your interpretation as being valid. But to me, (laughs) it's a little more like Die Hard. Okay. There's a scene where um, it's the – No, 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 no. Hans Gruber has Lewis yes. at gunpoint, and John McClane is on the other end of the, the walkie-talkie, and he's like, say you don't know me. You don't know who right. you're dealing with. You don't know what's going on. And that, that's the Mr. Miracle I'm reading here, because he's like, you don't understand who you're dealing with in Metron. You you can't deal with this the way that you do everything else, and you are not powerful enough to take him on. And I thought that was, it was a really interesting way to play this.
0: That is actually a really good analogy. I will credit that as being very valid as well. Oh, and that's oh that scene is so sad. Oh, because you, you, John uh, McLean's absolutely right. It's like stop, stop, stop. And uh, Metron, if, if Mister Miracle hadn't been who he had been, he probably would have wiped out these guys. At least this mm-hmm. interpretation. Yeah, mm. I really like the ending.
1: I like seeing Max's incredibly hairy hand and arm holding the Justice League communicator. <laughs> I thought it was a really nice way to to play it because it was it was relatively subtle. I like the concept that John can kind of perceive the nature of a person because. Um, And this this is the Catholic in me. But Max was pretty well intended to kill that guy until something else happened. But he still very much had that crime in his heart. And you can make an argument that, you know, Max is a murderer. In fact, there's a there's a great line where it says that he wants to say that the computer hypnotized him, but he didn't. And he still left his his boss to die. But the fact that John has read into him and sees the changes that he has made, willing to say, "All right, we'll still let you be part of the team." Um, I thought that was a, I thought that was a really nice touch. And you know, the idea that Max would at some point wake up and have this Justice League communicator on him um, and just know empirically that everything was going to be all right. I thought that was a, it was a really nice note. It, the Giffen DiMatteo stuff could hit a, a, an emotionally true note and a very sensitive note, and I don't think they get enough credit for that because everybody thinks of how funny they were. And they don't recognize like how many of these, these earnest moments happened in the book.
0: And that the humor is what makes it work so well too. Cause so many of the issues are so many funny things happen. And then there's a moment like this, which just gives you pause or, you know, looking ahead when, when Beatles brainwashed or, you know, when a member dies, I mean, there's, they, they know how to balance the story with the humor and the action. And then the emotional, I don't want to say it's a punch to the gut, but sometimes it is. And you're just like, wow. And it makes you, because you laugh with these people, you care about them more. You know, you can't help it.
1: It's a, uh, It's very Shakespearean. When you start reading about Shakespeare and the tragedies, you see that he breaks things up with humor or lighter moments. Because if you just start going darker, if you're if you're doing a tragedy and keep making things worse, you have to keep upping the ante on how bad things are. Where if you break it up with humor, you get to reset to zero and then you can put another serious moment in it. So kind of the same way in Justice League they have lots of humorous scenes so that when they have scenes of any emotional impact they have a little more resonance than if they were doing so they're not doing just serious stuff all the way through and they're not doing just humor all the way through um, they're they're bouncing back and forth and it, it makes each one a little more effective
0: absolutely now since we're talking about Max I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna dive a little bit more watch I'm gonna back up a few pages first the pages with Max dealing with evil pewter back and forth you know and you sort of touched on it when you mentioned the cover Max is just a guy and a shirt and tie. And that's it. He's interacting with the screen. That could have been like an incredibly boring set of pages. But McGuire managed to use, whether it's the, the framing of the panel, and really for me what it is is Max's facial expressions during these scenes. They're just outstanding and completely engaging. I mean, you could almost do it without the dialogue. You know exactly what Max is thinking in every panel just from the way he's drawn. It's absolutely amazing how well that was done.
1: He's got some really good body language in here too. There's a, there's a scene of Max leaning up against the water cooler
0: Mm-hmm.
1: that just tells you everything you need to know about that character. Yeah. The scene where in the in the first part of the Maxwell Lord flashback you see him leaning on the windowsill in kind of that Dick Nixon um, in the White House kind of heavy is the head that wears the crown kind of mood mm-hmm. where it, it gets that stuff across so well mm. Yeah, and his look of shock when he finds out that uh, Mrs. Wootenhofer has died uh, that's that's just really powerful too
0: yeah and then uh, when Max actually destroys evil pewter like I don't I don't know exactly why for me but like it was honestly cathartic like I felt it for Max I felt a release when I read that I'm like yes Oh, like I, I felt a huge exhale as he destroyed Evil Pewter, and it just it felt wonderful. And then following that, the the sad moments of Max just sort of trying to shuffle to the door as he's bleeding out and realizes it's all over, and 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 realizes that it's been an ugly story, and he just collapses. It very again, very touching, very powerful stuff.
1: Yeah, it's such a it's such a quiet moment, and it plays so well because it's not it's not forced overly dramatic. It's not tilted camera angles and close ups, and it's just very matter of fact that he's dying in front of the door.
0: Yeah. So alright. Here here's the topic I was gonna say for the end, but let's do this now since we're talking about Max. I I think it's interesting that the importance of Maxwell Lord as a character into this team and the influence he had and the emotional connection as we just discussed that you feel with him, and he's only twelve issues old. Truthfully we didn't Really, meet him very much till, like, in depth till issue four. So, um, and so that would put us at eight months old. And, I mean, I, maybe I'm projecting more because I read this series in, I joined it later, but I think the readers were very invested in Max at this point to make him the focal point of this entire issue and have that emotional moment at the end. The question I put to, out there is: I can't think personally of a supporting character that any of the mainstream companies have introduced in the last twenty years, into you know that has that the mainstream audience has adopted and accepted after just twelve issues as be as being someone they care about. People come and go, certainly supporting cast, but. I can't think of anyone that had the kind of impact that Maxwell Lord had. I, can you think – I'm probably putting you on the spot, but can you think of anybody that got introduced that people just gravitated to and went, yes!
1: You are – there There are a couple characters I can think of, but I don't know how fast it happened because a lot of the stuff I read, I read in trade now. Yeah. Like like Maria Hill in the Iron Man books Okay, became yeah. a character that people really liked. I don't know how long that took. Um, um, Kitty Pride.
0: Bendis, Bendis did a good job. I was reading the, those books as they came out, and she started off in Avengers. Bendis did a good job with her, actually building her and introducing her pretty quickly. So, um, that's that, that's a decent one. Yeah, I'll give you that one.
1: Yeah. Um, Kitty Pride, um, for coming into an X-Men team that had existed for five, almost ten years at that point, I thought she blended with the team really well and, and became pretty engaged.
0: Okay. Well, I'll, I will definitely give you that, but I'm, I'm saying in the last 20 years. Oh. Uh, so okay, we're talking since like the 90s, since, since the boom, if you will.
1: Yeah, that's true. The the only other person I can even remotely think of is uh, Miles Morales, but I I haven't read the Ultimate Spider-Man stuff, ironically, having written Ultimate Spider-Man. That's true. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how long it took people to gravitate towards that character. I don't know at what speed they introduced him into the book.
0: And not to burst your bubble on that one, though, I will say Miles isn't a supporting character.
1: Well, he, he was, and then he becomes Spider-Man, right? You, well, you need to build him to enough of a character that you want to see him take on the mantle.
0: Did I, no, I, I didn't read his original appearances, but didn't he pretty much start off? right is spider-man kind of like a kyle rayner thing is like right out of the gate they were the character
1: oh he might be right i thought he went to school with him but they've they've retold that story so many times that i never and i don't know exactly where he fits into things yeah so but this the maxwell lord story though it does a does a great job with a supporting character because he doesn't have the advantage of being a hero with a team who can who can mesh with them in the middle of a battle or in the traditional superhero stuff he has to get people. Uh, the they have to get people to like the character, even though he is he's essentially like a Perry White type character. Yeah, like he's he's not involved in the action stuff. He's involved in the quiet moments.
0: The, all the characters I can think of, you know, like you mentioned Perry White or Steve Lombard or anything like that, they're all 30, 40, 50 years have been around now, and that's kind of why they've stayed around is they've been around so long. I can't think of, you know, uh, I mean, you, you, meant Maria Hill's the only one, as you mentioned that. So, write in, folks. Let us know if you can think of a supporting character who's been introduced the last twenty years or so that became beloved by the readers, like Maxwell Lord did, or Maria Hill, as you, as you just mentioned, as people follow her as well. Because I, I, I'm drawing a blank. So it's, I, I'm not trying to say people aren't writing as good at comics, but I just don't know if people are, are the fans maybe are accepting, and and maybe they're not being carried over as writers change over. I don't know. But Max was something special. I gotta tell you, mm. yeah. shame that no one ever did anything with him after after 2004, so... Uh... <laughs> You, you mentioned the opening page with Metron, the, his giant face, and I got that's a great, great page. Now, last month, uh, when Kyle and I covered the issue, we talked about the, the cliffhanger page leading to this. seemed like it was lacking something. Like, the image of Metron, it was supposed to be the big kapow moment with the reveal of Metron, but it was kind of small. It didn't really sit right with me. Well, this this is the way to do an imposing Metron right out of the gate. So, well well done. That more than makes up for the uh, last panel of the last issue. Oof. Wow.
1: Yeah, that's it's really... Really well done. I mean, everybody says it, but McGuire is so good at faces, yeah, in a way that really hadn't been seen in comics at that point. He he had a subtlety to it that that people other people just don't achieve. Um, also, I'm going to say I love the Global Guardians. I I unironically adore those characters. I read the Super Friends issues that were coming out. Oh. Uh, Super Friends was a really weird comic because it kind of took place in the DC universe. Uh, they, yeah. would, they would reference things that were happening in the comics, but Wendy and Marvin and Zan and Jaina were nowhere to be found in the quote-unquote real comics. But the, the three-part story where Drax has all these bombs and the superheroes have to team up with the different superheroes of other countries, You know, some of them are Are laughably, I'm not going to say stereotypical. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I mean, Jack-o'-lantern, you know, (laughs) the, the Irish character. But I thought he had a really interesting backstory and they they teamed with Green Lantern and that's just a natural fit, um, even though he had a magical power base. And, And you'd get a moment where the character would briefly describe their origin and I thought that so many of them could be fleshed out so well, which obviously they were given what Fire and Ice become. But even 30 years after reading it, Tutara, who has one appearance in the comic and then appears here, I still remembered his power set. The only thing I was wrong about is, in my head, I thought he was from Australia but he's actually New Zealand. Uh, okay, but yeah, I just I I love those characters, the character designs, and just the the wackiness of you know there being an entire international team of superheroes that I I wish had shown up a little more organically in in the comics. I thought they were I thought they were really interesting.
0: I'm always a sucker for that kind of thing. You know, you mentioned the Global Guardians. I never I've never read the Superfriend stuff, but whenever the Global Guardians would show up in like Who's Who or in a comic, I was always fascinated. Now, yeah, some of them were Mort's, absolutely, but mm-hmm. uh, or or using in in Marvel. I remember Contest of the Champions when they you know they went in for that giant battle and they brought in characters like Shamrock from Ireland and, you know, all the different characters from the different parts of the world. I found all that stuff fascinating. It, you know, this this is a big one because, I mean, Fire – well, Green Flame and Ice Maiden, this is their first appearance in Justice League International. They have arrived. This is very exciting for us. Fire, of course, star of the uh, TV show Powerless, I guess, at this point.
1: Yeah, she's going to be joining soon as we record this. Very cool. And Jack-O-Lantern is somehow the bad guy in Powerless. Is he really? <laughs> he is. And, you know, and, and I'm an Irishman. I watch this going, why has he got to be the bad guy? I don't, I don't get it. He – you know, this is a show that actually referenced Count Evlo from from Legion of Superheroes. So seem to think DC has enough of a bench where they could have picked an actual bad guy and not jack-o'-lantern.
0: Well, if, if you look at the source material, I mean, not, not legitimate source material, but if you look at uh, humorous superhero books that DC published, I mean, Just League International is one you're going to kind of gravitate towards, and Jack O'Lantern was the bad guy through a lot of this. And he, he makes a nice foil because he was a hero who turned evil.
1: Oh, I, I didn't know he I didn't know he turned evil. I, apparently, I punched out at some point. Yeah, I just he, remember him being the good guy in, in Global Guardians.
0: No, yeah, in these Justice League International, Issues coming up. Uh, sorry, spoilers, folks. He is going to he gets uh, controlled by Queen Bee and ends up being a real pain in the butt for the Justice League.
1: Oh, okay,
0: yeah. So that may be why it connects. So you, I liked in your recap, you mentioned Doctor Mist being a little bit creepy because if you if you read his secret origins issue where he was sort of like creepily stalking Zatanna all those years, uh, yeah, that could be a little bit creepy with him with offering ice money and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure how that scene is supposed to play, uh, especially <laughs> given the the fire scene. that it comes right after that.
0: Yeah. She, she is, you know, right out of the gate, she is all about sex appeal. They, they don't hide it. It's right there on Front Street. And it's very different from the portrayal of any female character we've seen in this series so far. Uh, now, for me, I'm perfectly fine with that. I'll say it. She's hot. And I can say that because she's got firepowers without being a, a sexist. But that is something that they started playing with in the series that they hadn't dabbled in before. Because she, she's a stereotype that, you know, isn't necessarily looked on as positive. Yet But she's got the counterbalance with ice. So it works nicely.
1: Yeah, they had a, they had a good range of characters. And I, I thought it was interesting just to, to choose to do those characters and not bring in anyone else from any other. You know, the, there were certainly other characters they could have brought in at this point or created new ones because they didn't have any problems creating Maxwell Lord. Mm-hmm. You know, to, to salvage two characters from super friends and have them go on to become the characters they did, that, that shows either a lot of foresight or how good the writing of Given and Dematteis was. Probably both.
0: I imagine, too, at this point, they had been given the notice that they were losing Black Canary. Because I think this is one of her... I don't mean to speak out of turn, because I don't remember the detail of it, but we're, we're pretty much at the end of her tenure. Uh, we might see her again once or twice. And there's a, a very sad farewell scene with Oprah, Oberon in an upcoming issue uh, that's is just done over the phone when she leaves the team. So, they, you know, knowing they were losing pretty much their, you know, standout female character, they knew they had to replace her, so bringing in Fire and Ice was a good uh, supplement, and then Big Barda as well, so I mean, it takes three people to replace Black Canary, uh, three women. (laughs) Now, a couple different things, just to wrap up here in my comments. I talked about this last episode, the interesting thing from a panel design, because Keith Giffen did the layouts here, is all the scenes that are from the perspective of Evil Pewter, when Evil Pewter is talking or talking about a a scenario, it's always done in a nine-panel grid, which I love. And even on the panel Pages where it's not actually nine panels. Like I'll just give you an example here. Page four, the bottom two thirds of the page are nine panel grid because it's evil pewter who's who's communicating. The top panel is not evil pewter, so it's not in the nine panel grid format. So you don't, so I guess what I'm trying to say is you don't get nine panels, but it's still in that grid format when it's from the pewter's perspective. And I just find that fascinating that Keith Giffen kept that going throughout the issue whenever evil pewter was 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 the main focus, and of course, you know, he becomes famous for the nine panel grid and Legion of Superheroes and that time you know, that kind of stuff he did later. So I I just find that interesting that he did that. I thought it was a nice artistic touch.
1: Yeah, it creates a nice sense of almost robotic monotony that works really, really well with the computer being the bad guy.
0: Yeah, and you never mistake who's talking. Even if you don't notice the nine-panel grid, it just becomes intuitive. You just kind of sense it. Again, Kyle and I talked a little bit about this last time, but not a lot of jokes in this issue. Now, there's humorous situations, certainly some sitcom stuff, you know, like Mr. Miracle in the beginning with JLI and trying to get in between Metron and them and Fire and Ice with their financial situation and Mr. Miracle and Beetle flying the Bug. I mean, stuff like that's kinda of, Or not the bug, but their ship. There's some funny bits, but it's not the jokes that we're used to. There's a lot of exposition and explanations. And, and I still stand by what we said last time, which is issue, I, I think issues 11 and 12 work better if you read them together. Uh, standing uh, by themselves, they don't necessarily feel like a typical JLI story. But put them together and you get everything you need. You get the whole mix. You get the funny. You get the action. You get the emotional. Uh, so it, it, this almost would have worked as an annual if you put the two together. I oh, yeah. Well, again, awesome story. Really, I mean, certainly, I, I nitpicked all through that because that's what I do. I'm an Uber nerd, but really enjoy this issue. I think you were right. Uh, it has a lot of crunch, a lot of depth in this one. I read it too on Comicsology. I read it in panel by panel mode, which I absolutely love doing. And uh, you're right, it just keeps going. It keeps going, and there's and it's a lot of talking, but that's okay. It was all engaging. At never point was I bored. So
1: yeah, it's it's nice to have a lot of story.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, you know what? There's some other things we should talk about in this comic. There are some fun house ads. Why don't we take a second to talk about those? The, uh, the first house ad is a half pager with Warlord, and it says, A New Land, A New Fight for Freedom, A Very Old Enemy, Maddox Revenge, a special three-part saga by Michael Flesher and Jan Dersema, beginning in February in Warlord. Issues 129, 130, and 131. Story so good, they canceled the book like a month later. So, <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't reading Warlord at this point, but I have actually just in the last couple years gone on a Warlord buying binge, and I have nearly all 130 something odd issues sitting in a loan box, waiting for me to read. Were you a Warlord guy?
1: I was not. I had the I had the action figure. Okay, because there were so few. Yeah, there were so few superhero action figures to have that you're like, oh my god, I can't believe they're doing Warlord. It's kind of the same reason I have every Tomar Ray action figure ever made. (laughs) Um, I read a couple stories. I was like Mike Grell, this probably wasn't sure. my cup of tea, but the more I know about comics publishing history, the idea that Warlord's comic managed to survive for you know 130 some issues when so many tastes were changing. you know, so many books at this time were going to be just superhero books that Sergeant Rock survived as long as it did and that Warlord survived as long as it did. It definitely had a fan base. And I would be a uh, neglect in my uh, duties if I didn't mention that Jan Dersama went to the Kubrick School.
0: Yes. Yes, she did.
1: And there's also an ad for 321 Contact, which I loved as a kid.
0: Yes! On, uh, yes. <laughs> Absolutely love that show. And it, it, seeing those people with the giant snake in the ad, it's like, oh, yeah, I totally remember these guys. <laughs> now, speaking of Warlord, real quick, I will say part of what has attracted me to it is I talked about my sweet spot, you know, 1983 to like 1995. And I've read so many DC comics from that period. There's not a lot I haven't read. And so I started looking one day going, what haven't I read from this era? And this is one of the standout books that I noticed. I did read a couple of issues I got out of a 50-cent pen, and I was like, wow, this is super fun. And so I, uh, it, it's clicked with me now, so I'm, I'm really excited to get into it. Now, unfortunately, the DNA agents I just bought from the 80s have, have somehow supplanted my Warlord reading project, but uh, we'll, we'll get through all of it one way or another. You want to
1: pace yourself.
0: DNA Agents is so good. I've read, like, first, I don't know, five or six issues. I'm loving it. All right. Uh, next ad is for The Phantom by Peter David, Joe Orlando, and Dennis Janke. For 21 generations, the Phantom has stood fast as the protector of his people, and if he loses this fight, the current Phantom will be the last. So is this a Janky cover? Is that what we're looking at here?
1: Uh, no, I think it's Joe Orlando who drew it. Oh,
0: really? Oh, I thought yeah. he was helping Peter with the writing. Okay, I see. No, wow. no. Wow. Okay. So, now, did you read this one?
1: I read this I am a huge Phantom fan. Okay. Um, I remember the first time I saw a Sunday comic from the newspaper reading the Phantom is when he found his Stegosaurus. And I just I fell in love with his character. I love the generational nature of the character. Mm-hmm. And Peter David takes a lot of flack for a lot of things. His Phantom series is brilliant because there's a thing that I notice with comic book adaptations, that Phantom not being an adaptation. But like when you read the original Dark Horse run of Buffy, it feels like everybody's rejected Specs (laughs) scripts because it's a lot of the characters talking in the library being funny which works when you have actors and it works less well when it's on a page where when joss whedon came on and started writing the angel issues he started doing all the stuff he couldn't do in the tv show so he had you know a giant 10-foot monster that fought angel and did all the stunts that he couldn't afford to do peter david takes advantage of this being a comic book series it's a really interesting like two-part story it takes place in the present and it also takes place with i think the 15th phantom Hmm. uh, who gets captured by pirates and it cuts back and forth between the two in a way that you wouldn't be able to do in a comic strip it took it took every advantage of it being a four issue miniseries comic to tell this long form story that was excellent and then uh, eventually the book would get picked up i think for another year it's drawn by luke mcdonald and it's written by mark verheiden and i love those issues too they are very different than the Peter David issues, but there's an issue where the Phantom places his mark on somebody without punching him because hmm. the mark is not the thing. The Phantom has two rings. He has the, the good ring and the bad ring. Mm-hmm. Uh, the bad ring has the skull. And when he, you know, he punches you and then there's always the part where the characters say, Mark, dot, 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 never comes off. And if he gives you the good ring, you're under his protection and his wife has one. So I always wanted to see the scene where, you know, he like, how do you do that to here? Let me just punch you. But it's going to be awesome some after that <laughs> um. The Phantom doesn't get the chance to punch the guy, but still marks him, and everybody in the village knows that he's marked by the Phantom, even though he doesn't have the uh, the skull mark on his cheek. And I thought that was just brilliant, too. I Yeah, I, I adore the Phantom, and I adore the DC run of the series, both the miniseries and the, the series that followed.
0: Awesome. I've, I've never read it, but, you know, Peter David in the late 80s, not a lot that he could do wrong at that point. And our buddy Tim Wallace, who does the Blue Beetle stuff, also does a Phantom blog, so you should check that out as well. Very cool. And then our final house ad worth mentioning is... Action Comics. It is 50 years of Superman in Action Comics. So it has a big old shot of Superman and Wonder Woman playing Kissy Face long before the new 52. And it says, Join Superman and Wonder Woman in John Byrne and George Perez. And it lists off a bunch of other creators and top talents as DC Comics celebrates the Man of Steel's 50th birthday. See all the greats in this 80 page giant golden anniversary issue. And it's Action Comics number, is that 600, 500? 600. Yeah. So I wasn't reading Superman at this time. I didn't come in until when they got engaged. Were you a you said you were a Superman fan, right?
1: Oh yeah, I don't. I don't think you should do superhero romance stories like this. I don't think there's an audience for it. <laughs> uh, Says the guy. Yes, this was one of the things that Byrne was experimenting with, and. George Perez was doing Wonder Woman at the time, and they decided that Superman and Wonder Woman were actually going to go on a date. And there were scenes between – in their individual issues where you could tell the characters started to have like a fondness for each other. Uh, Superman wasn't quite dating Lois at this point. Steve Trevor wasn't a romantic interest for Wonder Woman at the time. So there's a degree of it that makes sense. It it plays out a little flat. It's a little rushed where they they go on a date and then they get taken to Olympus and weird stuff happens And they basically say, hey, we're much better as friends. And while I don't necessarily think that they got to that point artfully, the Superman Wonder Woman relationship was excellent after this point where they weren't Superman and Batman friends the way they they were in the 70s and 80s. But they were like they were each other's confidants in a lot of ways. And there, there are scenes where after Superman does get engaged, Lois is talking to Wonder Woman. There's like no animosity, no jealousy, no none of the typical stuff that you do. It's, you know, they call each other Clark and Diana and they're they're really good friends and can trust each other. And I thought that was a a really interesting relationship, especially because after Crisis, Superman didn't have Batman the way that he used to anymore.
0: Right. Oh, I miss the post-Crisis so much. Such good stuff. Now that we're done with the house ads, we're going to move on to our next segment, folks. A segment we'd like to call... Character Spotlight this is where Tom will be asked to share some thoughts on one of the characters from this issue. So we're not really looking for an origin recap, but more like, where was this character in the DC Universe just before joining the JLI, and and what kind of impact the JLI had on the the live, or the career of that character. So, uh, looking for maybe three to five minutes. Most of the guests who come on here seem to think that 20 minutes is the right amount. I'm hoping you're uh, on board with this plan, Tom. What do you got for me?
1: I didn't know there would be homework.
0: Sorry, Um, sir. Well, just riff something about Mr. Miracle. How's that? I will do what I can.
1: Uh, Mr. Miracle was part of jack kirby's fourth world trilogy what? along with forever people and new gods he was quite the escape artist uh sneaking out to an extra two issues before he was canceled like the rest of the line he is loosely based on jim staranko uh, who also was an escape artist yes did not know that that's awesome it is crazy if you've ever watched leverage there is an episode where uh, they have an ultimate security system and it's called the staranko because of this <laughs>
2: uh,
1: in fact a friend of mine wrote that episode and i started to tell jim about it and then jim told me why why my friend did this and i'm like i i know why i came over here to tell this no you go on legends of the comic this Franco right. you tell me whatever you want to tell me he is just so cool
0: so you're not i hope you hope you didn't correct him for his life but okay <laughs> I,
1: I did not no no i he's an escape artist i figured you know flip me over a table or something or I <laughs> you know trap door underneath this table it's a dragon con or something nope i learned not to get myself into those situations um After Mr. Miracle was canceled, he appeared in Brave and the Bold every once in a while and some zany Haney stories. Uh, He had a series brought back for no apparent reason for three issues in 1977, Mm. which I remember buying. They're gorgeous. They're Marshall Rogers and, and Michael Golden. Whoa, um, I, seriously? Yeah, and Yep, yeah, and written by uh, Steve Englehart. Okay. And I have no memory of the series making any sense hmm. because the character was so different than any character I was reading at the time. But yeah, though. oh, those covers were gorgeous. It was a beautiful book. Uh, he guest-starred in DC Comics Presents, one of my favorite series of all time. And then he met the JLA and the JSA in 1980 when they had their annual team-up. Uh, that's the one that uh, you were talking about recently where Dick Dillon passed away after the first issue. Right, right. Uh, that's the series where... Where he shows up incredible uh, right incredible storyline oh yeah it's just just great and you see how well those heroes the new gods can play with the, the mainstream DC characters uh, right before this he had appeared just like everybody else did in Crisis because everybody was in Crisis uh, and then again, he was in Legends, which uh, led to his appearance in the series, almost as if he was put in the series to lead up to being in Justice League. He also showed up in the creepiest Superman team-up ever, where Big Barda <laughs>
0: and Superman made a sex tape. Oh, uh, you're going to bother Michael Baylor by saying that, but okay.
1: There are lots of ways to read that, so you can hit a certain level of comfort with it if you want to or not, but the more you think about it, the more you go, this just ain't right. Um, he had a one-shot around this time, uh, written by Mark Evanier, who did a lot of work with Jack Kirby and drawn by Steve Rude so it's another gorgeous book and then he had a new series by J.M. DeMatteis and it ran 28 issues focus a little more on the domestic life and I, I think I may have bought it but I, I don't remember that series particularly well
0: it was super fun uh, it was really really fun I it's weird I, like, I was buying Justice League Europe and Mr. Miracle but not the main Justice League series for some reason Justice League America at that point and I still I love the heck out of that Mr. Miracle series I want to say oh, am I going to get the name right Joe Phillips is Is that the name of an artist? But uh, I think Joe was the one, uh, Joe Phillips was the one who was drawing it. Really, really a fun book. I enjoyed that one.
1: I can't imagine I didn't buy it. I was buying almost everything at the time. I'll see if I have it. And that series came about because of his time in the JLI, and he even got his own superpowers figure. Yes, he did. Uh, which came with his own set of chains as his power action, which was a little weird. You know, hey, I've come already captured, and now I will break out. Um, it's called the fetish figure. <laughs> yes, and because of the armature that they had, or the mechanism that they had to put in him he had this this really like Al Plastino barrel chest compared to everybody else (laughs) but mr miracle definitely like jumped onto the scene after being in justice league for so long you know he was kind of a footnote who would show up every once in a while he was never he was not the major character that he was there's something about him that resonates with people i i've run a little hot and cold on him i mean i like him in I like him in the right thing, but I wouldn't say that he's a character that I would want to see more of. Mm. I, you know, when, he, when there's a character who's done well, you want to see more of him anyway, but there's ne- I wouldn't say there's a point where I'm like, you know what the world needs? It needs a Mr. Miracle miniseries. <laughs> because there's always a point where Mr. Miracle really wants to be an escape artist. So he goes around from show to show, and then crimes happen while he does it, and it seems like a like an odd concept for a book. Like I like the idea of Mr. Miracle actually being a showman, and dealing with all the stuff that comes with being a performer, it makes his character different than a lot of other superhero characters. But it also creates an odd construct for what you decide to make your stories about because as opposed to having like a normal job where it gets interrupted for you to become a superhero he's he's performing and somehow that ties into whatever adventure he's
0: having well add into the mix a wife who is not helpless who he doesn't no. need to save and who quite frankly he spends a lot more time saying yes ma'am than anything else and uh, it makes for an interesting combination and I think they did find that balance in the uh, the ongoing Lisa came on along the side of Justice League now, if, if you want to find some good uh, Mister Miracle stuff, again that series is great, and of course the original Kirby series. I love that series as well. I think that's a fantastic run.
1: Yeah, Jack knew what he was doing, and it. You know, when I was a kid, I didn't like his stuff all that much because it was so it was such an exaggerated style. Right. That it's amazing that you come back to it after a few years and go, oh, I see what you were doing. I wasn't ready for that yet.
0: I think that's a very common thing. I was the same way. I remember when I was reading Jack Kirby on, uh, I guess it was the Superpowers miniseries, the, the, the comic book version, and I was like, what is this? This is terrible. I could draw better than this. And then, yeah, years later, in fact, it wasn't till it was probably early 2000 that Kirby finally clicked for me. And it was those original New Gods and uh, Mr. Miracle stories that, uh, that I read that I finally went, I get it now. Wow. You know, just amazing stuff. So I'm going to ask you a loaded question, sir. So since you you, since you are now our Mr. Miracle spotlight guy, uh, <laughs> how exactly did Mr. Miracle get invited to join the Justice League international team?
1: He was involved in Legends, and they're all standing around saying, hey, do you want to form a Justice League? And everybody's... He didn't make that scene. He didn't make that scene?
0: No. That is a question we've been asking since the beginning of this podcast. Thanks for listening, by the way. Uh, of basically saying, when did... <laughs> crack myself up sometimes when did mr miracle get invited to join the team there's no he just shows up in issue one and then everyone's expecting him so there is an untold tale there somewhere between legends number six and justice league international number one where he is invited to join the team and nobody can figure it out yet
1: it's probably after they didn't get superman it's like <laughs> well i'm too busy for all of you but if you ever have an emergency where you guys can't bail yourself out give me a call uh, I'll show up in your second season premiere. Wait, no, that was supergirl.
0: Um, oh ho. I, I like I how fl- Flash and uh, Changeling try to get into that action too. Yeah, we can't either, but we'll be there if you need us. Yeah, we're gonna call you Gar. That's gonna happen. <laughs> Doctor Fate can't handle this one. Let's call Gar Logan, folks.
1: Well, you know the Justice League has a track record with that because you know Metamorpho said no. So I figure once you get rejected like that, you're like, what if what if some superhero doesn't want to help us out? Like we really need them and they can't they can't join us. They're just gonna be a jerk about it. That doesn't make any sense. So you're right. Yeah, I don't I don't know when he decided to you know when he got. In invited to the team. He just he broke in like an escape artist.
0: There you go. There you go. That is a, that's a decent no-prize answer. I may accept that. I was going to admonish you for not doing your job with the character spotlight, but I think you just eked it out right there at the end of it. So
1: You tried to trap me and I escaped. It
2: was oh, an illusion.
0: Oh, God. <laughs> All right. With that, I think we're going to move on to the moment everybody's been waiting for, folks. It is time for <laughs> Wahaha Award. And this is where we nominate the funniest moment in the issue. Now, both myself and Tom have selected a moment. Only one is going to walk out with a coveted Wahaha Award. Tom, what did you pick?
1: I like the scene where they almost fly into the mountain, where Beetle and Mr. Miracle are having a heated discussion, and the Martian Manhunter pops in very calmly in one panel and says, do you gentlemen have a great desire to die? And Mr. Miracle says, no. Why do you ask? Oh, nothing. The ship's just about to crash is all. You might want to pile it more and chatter less. I just like how nonchalant he is about the the fact that they might they might actually die. He just doesn't care. He's not he's being a little bit of a jerk about it, but he's not like slapping him aside, back of the head or anything. He's just like, hey, you might you know keep your eyes on the road, stop texting and driving. <laughs> um, and I like that it's he who does it because it's not Batman is in the ship at that point and he doesn't react to this. You know he probably figured out they were going to crash in the mountain like five minutes before and told John to go up there because right. you know, part of his Batman planning is like it'll be much better. It'll be funnier if he does it.
0: <laughs> um, <laughs> well, last issue, Batman was telling them to crash into the building on purpose. So, uh, Oh,
1: yeah, I remember that.
0: Yeah, so. Interesting. Okay. Well, I like your choice. That's a good one. My choice is the very next panel, oddly enough, where Blue Beetle goes, aye, aye, Captain. Warp 7, Scotty. And Mr. Miracle, of course, says, Beetle, please don't call me Scotty. Says, it was a joke, Scott. You know, Scotty, Star Trek. He says, star what? Am I the only one on this team with a sense of humor? And Mr. Miracle comes back with, blast it, Beetle. I'm an escape artist, not a comedian. It's so, Clearly, he's pulling Beetle's leg the whole time. He gets the Star Trek reference. I like that. I found that very funny. That was my selection. I gotta tell you, it it almost wasn't. I came very close to picking a different moment, which was on page three. And you know, as I'm saying this, I might change my mind. I don't know. I I do like this moment quite a bit. On page three, when they're trying to hold back Captain Adam, because Captain Adam has just done something stupid and blasted Metron. And and the team's trying to protect Captain Adam, basically. And Blue Beetle actually says, if you want a metronome, you gotta go through us. And he, with his (laughs) face and that body Language where he's like pointing at his chest and he's got this sneer in his face. Okay, you know what? That's it. I am changing my answer. This is my answer now. This is my wahaha moment. It's just it, when he said, when I read it uh, and it said metronome, I actually laughed out loud. I just thought that was hysterical. So now, Tom, we got to decide which is the better moment? The nonchalant, uh, dry wit of Martian Manhunter talking about crashing the mountain, or is it Blue Beetle calling him metronome with that body language? <laughs> What are you feeling, man?
1: Well, I think it's mine because that's why I picked it. If I thought it was yours, I would have picked that one. Um,. I, I will say that the, the Blue Beetle moment is nice, but it's kind of like icing on the cake. It, it's such a fleeting moment. It's really well executed. It's it's really well – like I said, the body language is great on it. Blue Beetle is about to get out his giant flashlight maybe. <laughs> um, you know, the one with the air compressor in oh, it yeah. because that would take down a new god. That in and of itself is kind of funny, I guess.
0: Um, the weapon that almost never gets used in the entire JLI run. I think it gets used by Oberon once in the whole series. Yes.
1: Exactly. I think it's it's a nice note, but it's not a complete joke. It's not a complete boah ha ha. It's more like a boah.
0: Okay. All right. <sighs> I seem to roll over a lot for the guests in this segment. Ugh. All right. <laughs> I, I I can get on board with your segment because I do love that marshmallow delivery. It is very funny. I, although I just
1: love how he's he's peeking in into the panel. Yeah, it's like true. You know, it, it's almost like he's Mr. Roper or something leaning in <laughs> through the window to deliver a line. <laughs>
0: All right, folks. There you have it. Mr. Martian Mr. Manhunter, you are the winner of the Blah ha, ha Award. Congratulations. Wear it with pride. It is as tangible as the laughter we give you. So there you go, Jean. So, all right. I am defeated once again by the guest. Uh, I'm telling you, next month, whoever the guest is, they better watch out. I am coming guns blazes. My <laughs> Blah ha, ha I ain't backing down. Whoever you are, you are in trouble. All right. Well, um, folks... Sadly, I gotta say, uh, Tom is actually gonna leave us for a little bit. I know. I know, folks. Don't get too upset. Don't cry. He is gonna be back, but he has this great opportunity to go network with one of his bosses over at IDW. And we don't wanna get in the way of that. You know, I mean, yeah, opportunity, promotion, that kind of thing's on on the line here. So, now, as I understand it, Tom, you're going spelunking with uh, David Hedgecock, editor-in-chief over at IDW. Is that right?
1: Look, David is one of my oldest and dearest friends. If he wants to go on a fascinating yet dangerous weekend expedition with me, who am I to say no? (laughs)
0: All right. Good luck with that, and make sure to bring all your gear, and I hope you don't have any accidents. So until Tom gets back, folks, I'm going to read your listener feedback in a segment called Justice Log. Before I do your feedback, I do have some news I gotta discuss. First off, if you haven't heard already, Justice League International is getting an omnibus edition. These are these giant, massive hardcovers, like I don't know, like a thousand pages or something. So be on the lookout, folks. Justice League International Omnibus Volume 1 hardcover, due on October 3rd, 2017. It collects, oh geez, let's see. Uh Justice League 1 through 6, Justice League International 7 through 25, Justice League America 26 through 30. So in other words, the first 30 issues in the main series. The first six issues of Justice League Europe in the first three annuals. This thing is going to be unbelievable. You could kill a man with the size of this tome. So run out to your local comic shop or check online, pre-order it, make sure you've got it reserved for you on October 3rd, 2017 and those pre-orders honestly will help DC know that it's popular enough to go ahead and do a volume 2 when they get to that. So, Justice League International Omnibus Volume 1 hardcover due October 3rd, 2017. That's amazing. The other piece of news I want to go over is, remember a few episodes ago when we had the original art giveaway uh, with art by Jared Albrecht Yard sale artist? Well, we're doing it again. The yard sale artist has done a fantastic new piece, and it's a mashup between two of my favorite things Scooby Doo and the Justice League International. It's hilarious. And he calls it Class of 69. It's done in 11 by 17 Bristol paper in full color. And it features, <laughs> this is great, Booster Gold is dressed as Fred. Velma is dressed as Ice. Scooby-Doo is is designed up as Nort. Shaggy is as Blue Beetle, which I guess that makes me Blue Beetle. And Daphne is as Fire. And she's hot. And I can say that because she's Fire. I mean, she's on Fire. And it was inspired by the wide variety of work done by JMD Mateus. Because if you don't know, not only did he write J.L.I., he is also writing Scooby Apocalypse right now. So, um, best of all, Jared has been kind enough to donate this original art to us to do a drawing for one of you lucky leaguers to win. Now, in order to be eligible to win this piece of art, what you need to do is go to our website, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com slash JLI, and post a comment there on this episode, which is episode number 12. And what we need you to do is tell us your favorite JMD Mateus story and why. It can be a single issue, it can be a particular storyline within his Justice League International run, or something outside of his Justice League International run. And in your comments, be sure to mention the yard sale artist that's you got to say the phrase yard sale artist in order to be uh, eligible to win and we're looking for maybe a couple of sentences here you know don't feel like you need to write a book but give us a little more than just say craven's last hunt i mean you got to put a little effort into this folks now everyone that does submit an entry on the fire and water podcast website will be entered into a random drawing for this amazing piece of art we're also going to post an image of this artwork so you can see it it'll be on our gallery page again go out to our website you'll see a gallery post and at the bottom there there will be this piece of artwork and you can see how beautiful it is okay just Recap. Go to the Fire and Water Podcast website. Go to the JLI episode number 12. Don't do this on Twitter. Don't do it on Facebook. I'm sorry, people. I know you love your social media, so you got to do it on the website to be eligible. Give us your favorite JMD Mateus story and why. Mention the phrase yard sale artist, and the entries close on May 7th, 2017. So you got less than a month to get this done, folks. So get it out there. Uh, thanks to the incredible generosity of Jared Albrick, yard sale artist. Please check him out on Facebook and Twitter at yard sale artist. And also, uh, you have the option of buying a print of this artwork directly from from him, so just contact him on social media and he'd be happy to arrange it. Speaking of social media, folks, please join us in the conversation. You can find us on Facebook as Justice League International Blahaha Podcast. You can find us on Twitter as JLI Podcast. Also use the hashtag podcasts. We'll be able to find your comments there. And as I said earlier, really, it's it's about building a community of JLI fans around this show. And remember, if you're outside the United States, let us know. We'll assign you the appropriate embassy. And that's also good to know, because if you're international, we have to filter iTunes properly in order to see your iTunes review reviews. Speaking of which, let's do some iTunes reviews. Thank you so much to you folks that have done these iTunes reviews. They really help raise the profile of the show. And as a thank you, I'm going to read your entire review on the air. So first up is Travis Hammockery. (laughs) It's a great name. He says, A great look back. Comic reading kids today should listen to the show to gain an appreciation for the 30-year-old comics that their dads and weird uncles read back in the day. New fans of the JLA should take a look at this era of the team. The podcast is a great way to fall in love with the JLI. Thank you, Travis. Then we're from Kyle Benning uh, from King Size Comics, Giant Size fun podcast, and he was past guest of the show. He wrote, gosh, willikers, this podcast is good. Classic comics with fantastic art, rich character development, and humorous plots? Check. Entertaining and knowledgeable host? Check. A humorous and enjoyable audio listening experience? Checkmate. This podcast has everything you need to find your joy. A Shag and his guest host revisit the entertaining post-crisis era of the Justice League. It's a fun blast from the past, and you may learn something about the history of the DC Comics along the way. Five stars. Well, thank you very much, Kyle. Really sincerely appreciate that. I think he was leaning heavily into the guests part of that, considering he was on last episode. uh, And that's going to do it for iTunes reviews this time out. Thank you again to everyone who submitted an iTunes review. And for those of you who haven't yet submitted an iTunes review for, you know, this show that you're listening to right now and you're enjoying, then to paraphrase my friend Ryan Daly, I don't know how you sleep at night. How do you live with yourself? All right. Up next are your comments from our website, email, social media. Now, I'm going to be picking just bits and pieces to read on the air because the amount of feedback you guys provide is absolutely amazing. It's overwhelming, quite frankly. It is fantastic. You guys are the best. And I can't thank you enough for all the feedback. It makes doing the show so much fun. And the way you guys interact with each other is fantastic. Now, uh, as I mentioned, I'm going to be pulling just bits and pieces because, quite frankly, if I read it all, we'd be listening to something from Tim Price for like three weeks, and we don't have that kind of time. But uh, these comments are going to be specific to our last episode, which is Justice League International. Number 11 coverage with Kyle Benning. So, first up is Martin Gray from the Too Dangers for Girl blog in our Scottish embassy. He says, I always like the construct, mainly because he's easier pronounced than Kilgore, uh, which is K I L G percent sign R E, if you might remember him from the Flash comics. He goes, Do you say Kilg percentage? Because that's beyond me. Metron doesn't excite me. Too pompous. Still, I suppose he invented the lazy boy. <laughs> uh, Martin, I always say Kilgore, but I'm just freaking lazy. So, then we heard from Gus Casal who does the Argy Home, or L Blog de Gus Casals, he's at our Argentina Embassy, he says, I have many things to say about this issue, mainly because it was my entry point to the JLI, and Giffen in general, who's my favorite creator. What I did want to mention was how missed Bob LaPan is in this issue. Not even the Leia Aloha issues coming right up feel as off as his absence does. Yeah, I, I felt that absence, too, of the, the letter, it really does sort of change the feel of the story, and uh, I, I kind of agree with you there, Gus. Then heard from my buddy Dr. Angie who does the Supergirl blog, Comic Box Commentary. Also part of the Legion Super Superbloggers. He says, as I've said, I didn't really read this book, so I'm learning about it here. The construct is not a selling point. Isn't he the arch nemesis of Red Tornado? Isn't that damning with faint praise? <laughs> he says, Metron is a selling point, but the biggest selling point is Black Canary in that costume. Alas, she isn't long for this comic, and that costume isn't long for this world. I know, and you and I are on the same page about Black Canary in that costume. We love it. Then we heard from Thomas Favi, who goes, funny you should bring up Checkmate. I own all of it, I've been thinking about doing a podcast for it. Thomas, that's awesome. You absolutely should do a podcast. Anyone that's got the passion to do it should get out there and try it. Now, you should also give Task Force X uh, podcast a listen. That's by our buddy Aaron Head Moss. He does cover the Suicide Squad and Checkmate comics. Should give it a listen, see what you think. Now, that doesn't mean there's not room out there for multiple Checkmate podcasts. I mean, there's multiple Superman podcasts, multiple Batman podcasts. There's always room for more podcasters out there. So, definitely, good luck with that, buddy. Then heard from Chris Franklin, who's also from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. He does the Supermate Show, the Power record Show, the Batman Nightcast podcast. And where does he get all those wonderful toys? And he's been a past guest on this show. Chris wrote to say, You may want to treat your hostages a bit better before you put them on the show, Shag. Kyle brought the rage. I gotta say this cover, while well done, doesn't stick out in my memory. I own the book for nearly 30 years, but unlike most JLI covers by McGuire, I don't really remember this one. Chris, you and I were on the same page with that one, buddy. Then he goes on to say, I never quite got Metron. His characterization seemed to change a lot from series to series, creator to creator. Sometimes he was a straight heroic character, other times he was presented as above such concepts as good and evil, and played both sides for his own gains. Couldn't agree more. Then finally he says, I greatly appreciate the overview of the published career of the New Gods. Man, what a long and winding road it's been. I do recall all those later series being out on the shelves, but I don't remember much about them. I do know Paris Cullen's redesigns filled up those loose-leaf who's-who's, and when you go back and look at the long-haired, freak-face Orion, it's quite jarring as compared to the classic look. Yeah, we'll get to those when we do who's-who, that's for sure. well, you know, quite frankly, it was the 90s. That's kind of an open-ended excuse. <laughs> then heard from my buddy Centaurin at the Denmark Embassy. I don't know if you recall, in the last episode, we talked about how uh, Booster Gold threw up on the ship, and I said that was kind of a fun thing because it was funny, but it wasn't uh, you know, foreshadowing anything else in the story. And he goes, yeah, it's kind of nice with this where things are put into a comic and not necessarily a Chekhov's gun. Also, did Blue Beetle just decide it would be better to attack Black Canary with a leopard strike, half-fist, instead of the construct? <laughs> That's referring to the cover, how they're all smashed together. It looks like he's attacking. Then I heard from my friend of me, David A. Gutierrez, who's the executive producer of Pod Dylan. He says, "What kind of moron doesn't like Soundwave? He's the coolest of the early wave of Decepticons. You hate good things, Shag. Oh goodness, yes." So last episode, Kyle Benning and I discussed a little bit of Transformers, and I made some disparaging comments about Soundwave, and I did a really, really awful impersonation of Grimlock, and apparently, I raised the ire of every Transformers nerd on the planet. So terribly sorry, folks. Uh, I got <laughs> negative backlash from Chris Franklin, uh, the guys over the Generation X Wing podcast my buddy Siskoid, Clinton Robison uh, Kyle Benning himself uh, Mark Baker Wright, yeah, everybody just rained the thunder down on me for my uh, Transformers comments, so thanks, I appreciate that. Then let's see, uh, Centaurin continued to go, so if I get what happened right Shag kidnapped Kyle Benning to get him to do the podcast by throwing him in the back of his trunk, then dragged him to the studio tied him to a chair, then apparently had someone else go get Kyle's car to, to have it parked out front so security could have towed it away, so in a panic he goes and runs after it, apparently still handcuffed the chair and seems to develop Stockholm Syndrome as he comes back to finish the podcast after escaping. Did I miss anything? Then MTC chimes in and goes, I noticed that plot hole too. Shag should have given Kyle the hose again instead. Kidding, I thought Kyle's a great guest on another great episode. Iowa represent. <laughs> Thanks guys. Yes, you, uh, you sussed out our little uh, bit that we did about the kidnapping. The truth is, I, what Kyle doesn't know, I put a bag over his head before I kidnapped him and actually put him in the trunk of his own car and drove the car here and made sure that I parked it illegally so that it would get towed. So there's your plot hole fixed. Uh, I get a no prize for that one, I think. Then heard from my buddy Michelle Fiffet, who's a writer and artist on Copra and also the past guest of this show. He commented on the lettering. He says I thought John Workman's sharp style nailed it. I can't think of any better substitute for the mighty Bob Lappin, who only missed out on a handful of issues in the run anyway. Mixed in with a fresh new creation such as Grey Man and manga Mangacon, Giffen and Company repurposed some silver and bronze age concepts in this series that I remembered. The Assemblers, Royal Flush Gang, Queen Bee, Despero, and this issue's construct created by Engelhart and Dylan, by the way. We talked a little bit about that when he was on the show. In the last episode, Kyle and I had talked about a subscription ad, and there was a Legion shot there, and we were trying to figure out where it came from. And Michelle says, I always thought the Legion sub-ad was drawn by Byrne. Polar Boy's hands and dimples give it away. Chris Feinklin chimed in to say, It is John Byrne and Carl Kessel from Legion of Superheroes, Baxter Series number 36 cover. Woo! Thank you guys for identifying that. I was losing sleep over that. Then heard from Rob Kelly, my podcasting life mate, also from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. He does shows such as Film and Water Podcast, Pod Dylan Podcast, Treasury Comics Podcast, Digest Cast, Power Records, Aquaman and Firestorm Podcast, and Who's Who Podcast, and a man who has shared a hotel room with today's guest, Tom Zoller, and lived to talk about it. Rob goes on to say, I love this issue's cover. The design is so striking, it leaps off the racks. Considering how much McGuire is known for his facial expressions, it's interesting that he chose to hide almost all the jail liars' faces this time around. Hmm, interesting observation, Rob. Then heard from my buddy, Jimmy McGlinchey. He says, Hello, Irish Embassy here, and I think the evil pewter has hacked into our server. I keep getting emails that are clearly fake. Take this one. Help, my name is Kyle, and Shag has kidnapped me. He keeps me tied up in the basement and is telling me in excruciating detail why Phantom Girl is the hottest Legionnaire and taunting me with pictures of my recording studio being towed away. Send help, ASAP! Help, ASAP! think you may need Mr. Miracle to check the system again, Shag. <laughs> thank you, Jimmy. I, As I say every month, I sincerely appreciate Jimmy's efforts to play along with my ridiculous gimmicks every month. So thank you. I, I sincerely appreciate that. So Jimmy says, For me, the art on this story seemed a little different. A lot more expansive compared to the previous and subsequent issues, even though the art team is the same. It was only when you said that John Workman was doing the letters instead of Bob Lappin that made sense. Lappin's tight lettering to me makes the art appear more focused, whereas Workman's much more expansive lettering makes the art feel to me more broad. I looked at the splash page in both issues 11 and 12, and even though it's the same penciler, or inker, or and colorist, the word balloons in both pages give the art a subtle difference in my eyes. That's interesting that, you know, that lettering could change that perception, that sort of claustrophobic feel of artwork. And maybe I'm not using the right word there, but, you know, the tightness versus broadness. That's interesting. It says one, one thing that wasn't mentioned was how funny Guy was in his soppy mode. Well, no one can dispute Booster being sick as a funny moment. I thought the exchange between Rocket Red and Guy as the team flew over to meet Max was hilarious. It absolutely was. Jimmy. You're, there's no denying that. Finally he says, Great shout out to Martin Gray and his contribution to the UK Superman Monthly Magazine. This was my introduction to the JLI and the wider DC Universe and led me to seeking out places to find original content. Awesome! Look at that! Martin, you changed somebody's life. That's amazing! Edenoria. an Oreo. Uh, Then we heard from Mark Lax. He goes, Enjoying the back and forth between Black Canary and Rocket Red and the fact that Canary knows she's so hot that Dimitri's wife might feel threatened. Of course Canary seems full of herself but being that hot why wouldn't she be? I also like Rocket Red attempt at trying American slang only to have Batman of all people giving the no one says swell anymore speech. <laughs> and uh, Mark says, and to my friend Rob Kelly, Nort rules! Awesome. Thank you, Mark. Then we heard from my buddy Tim Price, who always has great comments. Tim says, boy, it was a long two months waiting to read issue 11, and Shag and Kyle deliver the goods. Lots of fun revisiting Dinah's best appearance in the series. Rather than them bemoan her upcoming departure or the bittersweet what could have been, let's celebrate Giffen and and McGuire giving her this great issue. Banter with almost the whole team taking charge of the mission. Jokes with Dimitri. Black Canary stole the show. You know what? You make a great point there, Tim. I have been sort of like all Debbie Downer about her leaving, but yeah. At least you, Eleven, is definitely worth celebrating for Black Canary in there. She was fantastic. Uh, let's see what else. He says, oh, Dimitri, Dimitri, Dimitri. I can read his dialogue all day. I know, it's hilarious. hilarious. He's so funny. He goes on to say, keep watching Dimitri's friendship with Batman. Yes, Batman, as it evolves. Another aspect of Rocket Red being such an outsider is he's not intimidated by Batman and talks to him like a person, rather than the Batman. No wonder Bats is the one most surprised by Red's lingo. Gee willikers. Bwaha ha ha <laughs> and also uh Tim did ask on social media before the episode dropped if we would address the coloring issue on the original cover comic, and he was very pleased that we did. Then her from my buddy Diablo Frank from the Rolled Spine Podcast Network. He does the Marvel Superheroes Podcast, the DC Bloodlines podcast, the Idol Head of Diablo podcast, which is about Marshall Manhunter, the Diana Prince New Wonder Woman podcast, he does many more podcasts and blogs, and he had me locked up in his house just a few weeks ago, and thankfully I escaped. Uh, Diablo Frank says, I like Mitron much, much, much better when he's called Thanos. (laughs) Uh, He says, I don't hate Nord as much as Rob, but a little bit goes a long way. And he was great on Justice League Antarctica, though. Then heard from my buddy Jose Rivera. He says, a late email I know, but only one thing to say about this issue. It's always great to see Dimitri. That was a character that shouldn't have worked at all, but he's so positive and so endearing. It's hard not to love him. Heard my buddy David Walker. He went to a Comic Con um, and he bought a pillow, like a throw pillow. Someone found some fabric with the cover of Justice League International number 24, uh, which is that group shot, and they made like a little throw pillow out of it. How cool is that? Awesome, David. Sleep on that. You'll have good dreams every night. Heard from, uh, I'm going to say this terribly wrong. I'm so sorry, Alexandre Jose de Carvalajo. Man, I messed that up. But either way, uh, on Facebook he shared some very, very interesting, thought out ideas. It was very long, so I'm not going to to cover here, but basically the idea is why not take the heroes of the Super Friends and make them the Justice League International because, you know, their makeup was a very uh, multicultural combination of characters. So he's saying they could have been an interesting Justice League International. He posted a bunch of really cool pictures and a, a lot of story threads and stuff. It's really interesting. So check that out over on our Facebook page. Then heard from Justin at Scrolls A Scrib, who's uh, talking about the cover of Justice League International number 11. He says, wouldn't Martian Manhunter be squishing Black- Blue Beetle and Black Canary to mush if he's using that much force as he looks to be? Well, that's a fair point. Ryan Daly followed up with. Wouldn't a better question be, why doesn't Martian Manhunter just phase through the fist entirely? That's a very good point, Ryan. And then uh, Jared Albrecht, yard sale artist, posted, uh, yeah, I don't know if you remember, but he's not only is he an amazing artist, he's also our marathon runner. And he wrote in to say, so now I've run 57 miles with shags in my ear. Listening to this podcast, folks. Wow. Thanks so much, Jared. Really appreciate that. Also want to give some shout-outs to people that mentioned us on their website. Thank you so much to JMD Mateus himself. He promoted the interview we did over on his Creation Point website. Thank you, JM. Michelle Fife over on his website, also promoted his episode on the show. Thank you so much. And we even got a mention in issue number 29 of his comic, Copra. Thank you so much for that, Michelle. And also on the Nerds Uncanny website, our buddy Maz shared his JLI origin story and mentioned the show. Thank you so much. Alright, now is one of my favorite parts of the show where I get a chance to say thank you to everyone who helped promote our show on social media, on Facebook and Twitter. And as I say every month, folks, I realize this is a very long list of names. These folks all showed their support and helped promote this show. They're raising the profile of this show and bringing more fans of JLI in. So it's important to me that we recognize these individuals and our community continues to grow. This time out, we're looking at well over 70 names from just this one last episode. Thank you so much to the following people. Al Girding, Andrew in Belfast, Dr. Ange, Boss from the Invasion Podcast, Batman Nightcast, Beatlemania Podcast, Brad Dade, Brian Yardley, Captain Marvel, Chris Franklin, Chris Lewis, Chris Sheehan, Chuck Rodriguez, Close Out Comics, Codeman, Coffee and Comics, Comic Reflections, Comics in the Golden Age, Dallas Gibson, David Byer Jr., Dylan Alan A. Lounge, LTO Gus Venejo, Man, I messed that up. Enemy of Atlantis, Federico Hernandez, The Film and Water Podcast, Geek Brain Podcast, Geek Force, G.I. Joe, A Real American Headcast, Gregor Rougeau, Headcast Network, Hero House Comics, Jacob Edwards, Jared West, Jared Albrecht, Javier Maidana, Jeff Douglas Messer, Jeremiah Parker, Joe Slab, King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun, Con L, Court Industries, Laurel Mountain Flower, Linda Vickers, Longbox Crusade, Luke Dobb, Mark Lax, Martin Gray, Moz, Mike Peacock, Mikey Flash, Music Speedforced, No One Equals Doom, Pat Sampson, Pietro Blaximov, Pod Dylan, Robert Lewis, Rolled Spine Podcast, Ryan Daly, Siskoid, Starman Manhunter Adventure Hour, Steven Bird, Superman and Captain Marvel Power Hour, Task Force X Podcast, Terry Jackson, The Aquaman Shrine, Tim Price, Treasury Comics, Vishnu Ganon, Warlock Thanos Podcast, Willie Harbro, and Zoom Yukonori my thanks to all of you for your support of the JLI podcast. Your feedback is such a critical part of the show, folks. The community of JLI fans we are building together is amazing. You guys are the best. So if I've forgotten anyone or if I missed anyone, I'm terribly sorry. It was probably Kyle Benning's fault that I screwed up. So just drop me a note, let me know, and I'll be sure to include you on the next episode. Please keep those cards and letters coming, folks. You can leave a comment on our website, which is firewaterpodcast.com slash JLI. Leave a comment on the show post. And don't forget, be sure to leave your submission for your chance to win the MASH with a JLI and Scooby Doo art piece by yard sale artists. So much fun. You can also find us on Facebook, which is JLI Podcast or Justice League International Bahaha Podcast, Twitter, JLI Podcast, or email jlipodcast at gmail.com. My thanks again to Kyle Benning for helping me cover Justice League International number 11, and thanks to you listeners for such a great collection of feedback from that episode. Now we're going to take a quick podcast promo break, then we'll see if our buddy Tom is back from his cave climbing adventure with his boss.
4: Hey folks, this is Jared Albrecht, a.k.a. The Yard Sale Artist and semi-regular co-host of the Longbox Crusade podcast with Pat Sampson. Pat came to me recently with a fantastic idea on how we might get the podcast community involved in taking some action to do some good. He called this idea Comics for Courage. Comics for Courage is a concept that came to Pat after I told him the fantastic true story of when I was stationed in Iraq during my military service. While there, I received a huge care package of comic books from the awesome folks over at Wizard and Toy Fair magazines. We had so many comics we didn't know what to do with them all. Seriously, it was over a hundred pounds of comics. So me and a couple of buddies took the bounty of comics we had down to the give and take library we'd set up in our headquarters building. And you know what? Within 24 hours, all the comics were gone. The bottom line here is that throughout history, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, Iraq, one thing remains a constant, soldiers love comics. It's quick, easy, fun reading that gives a soldier a taste at home and lets them escape into an amazing world of comics, even if it's just for a few minutes. So here's the best part of Comics for Courage. Pat and I aren't asking you to donate one cent of your money to Comics for Courage. What we would love is for you to donate your excess comics. You know those ones that are just kind of laying around. Just drop them into a box or a big envelope and mail them over to supportourtroops.org. Their mailing address is Support Our Troops, 13617 North Florida Avenue, Tampa, Florida, 33613. Now, they will make sure those comics get distributed to random soldier care packages, and as a person who's been on the receiving end of this, I can tell you it will mean a lot. And if you'd rather donate money than give up a single comic book, trust me, we understand about that, you can donate through their website as well. Again, that's supportourtroops.org. Just remember two things, all right? Two things. One, make sure the comics have good, clean content, no nudity or adults only comics, please. Those are the rules for any military member receiving goods downrange. Okay, and number two, this is the fun one. Please take a picture of you with your donation stack and post it on Twitter or Facebook at Longbox Crusade, or email it to contact at longboxcrusade.com. We'd love to give you an on-air shout-out and post your pick on the Longboxcrusade.com website. In summary. Pat and I over at Longbox Crusade Podcast would greatly appreciate you taking this small action to make a difference in the life of someone who is far from home defending our freedoms. Thank you for supporting the Comics for Courage initiative. That website, again, is supportourtroops.org. Please check it out. Throw them some comics. Make some soldiers happy. We appreciate it. Thanks again.
0: All right, folks. We are back from break, and it looks like Tom has returned. So, how did it go splunking with your boss?
1: You can call me editor in chief, Tom.
0: Now you, you you killed him.
1: I have a goatee now. It's part of the deal. It's kind of required. <laughs>
0: All right, so I should expect you to lose uh, lose your mind over Evil Pewter at any point now. All right, perfect. Have you
1: thought about taking a hiking, camping, mountain climbing trip?
0: Uh, I have just thought about it and decided not to go with you, sir. <laughs>
1: I'm just saying I like talking about Firestorm a lot. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but then you'd have to record with Rob every week. What What's that going to get you? Eh,
1: it'd be like old times.
0: <laughs> for one of you, maybe. All right. <laughs> folks, I have to say, because it's contractually obligated, I have to say thank you to Tom for appearing on this episode of the show. I sincerely appreciate it. Tom, why don't you tell the folks at home where they can find you on the interwebs and where they can find your products and services?
1: Well, just for you, Shag, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram under at <laughs> Thank you for that. Sure. My website is tomz.com, T H O M Z.com. Love and Capes and Long Distance are available on Comixology and on Amazon and at comic shops. All of them can get them from you. I get money no matter where you buy them from. So buy them however is most convenient for you. Uh, my new book, Time and Vine, starts coming out in July from IDW. It should be available for pre order right now. And if you go to the IDW website or look on my website, you should have a link to the preview for the first 14 pages of Time and Vine, every issue is gonna be at least 40 pages. It's gonna be the same format as Long Distance was for double-sized issues, and they're only a dollar more than quote-unquote regular issues. So you're getting twice the issue for only a dollar more.
0: Awesome. Well, Tom, any last thoughts on the Justice League?
1: You know, man, I just, I really like this incarnation of the Justice League. It was very different at the time. Going back and rereading stuff, it's weird to see like how much stuff I borrowed or was (laughs) just realizing that you could do something that wasn't a standard superhero story in comics. That It, it made a world of difference.
0: That's fantastic. And uh, now, folks, just to pull back the curtain a little bit, when Tom and I first corresponded with him about him being on the show, uh, I told him that he was going to get issue number 12. And this is kind of a big deal. This is the big, again, one year. You find out Max's history and everything. and I, And I think my words of encouragement to you, Tom, exactly were, Tom, don't blow it. And I don't know. I think it's going to be up to the folks in the comments. So, folks, go to our website and let us know if Tom did, in fact, carry the torch properly or if he totally screwed the pooch here. Uh, That's at FireAndWaterPodcast.com. Go to the JLI page and let us know what you thought of this episode, which uh, the story with Max, our banter, if you could call it that, Uh, and any other thoughts you have to share. Come back next month, folks, when we cover Justice League International number 13 and Suicide Squad number 13. What? two comics it's like a two for folks you get two for the price of one it is time for a crossover so folks go hit the loan boxes be sure you read both issues before you come back next month and we'll have another guest host to cover the issue with me who will it be come on folks surely you know how this works by now you're gonna have to wait a month to figure that one out thanks for listening everybody until next time i'm shag
1: and i'm tom
0: and you've been listening to the jli podcast
1: want Wanna to make something, something of it, it?
0: Alex
2: I had no choice Hank he's had us under surveillance he knows about the DEO he knows about
0: Kara I don't care if he's got the nuclear codes and his fingers on the button that is not some anonymous alien you brought in that is Maxwell Ward head of a multi-billion dollar organization Time magazine's reigning person of the year everyone's gonna be looking for this guy
2: they won't find him